Sometimes you just got to let the band finish. That is Ayla Brooke and the Sound Men on Fallen Tree Records. You have to check out that album, uh, Desolation Sounds. And uh, we are so grateful that they have, uh, Ayla Brooke has licensed Real Talk. They've donated that tune. They've donated that album for our use, which is absolutely amazing. And we appreciate that from the band and from the label. A good Friday morning to you. Ryan Jesperson here with you. A Friday edition. A good Friday edition. I'm feeling like no glasses today. We're not going to wear glasses today. Um, here we are. Real Talk. That's technical producer Samuel G. Brooks. How are you hey, feeling today? Real Talks. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm fired up now. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I like okay. I'm glad There's, you picked that tune. Well, the thing is, I, I kind of only play that one on Fridays. Okay. Right? I'm it's just a little sort of treat like, for us. It's a little treat for us. We get into the, the, the big rock and roll tune on Friday, and it's just, it's a, it's a fun well, track. Well, a job very well done. Yeah. Um, I think we're both excited because of our show today. It's going to be amazing. Sachi Cool is going to join us from BuzzFeed. She's going to check in from New York, their senior culture writer. Uh, in just a few minutes, we've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. And as a matter of fact, one of the interesting things about an interview like Sachi's is uh, it, it's uh, obviously Sam and I, I, I think I can speak for you because you were pretty excited when she confirmed. Um, we're both fans of her work. We like her writing, but she's also been nominated by many, many real talkers as someone that you would like to hear on the show. And we love these emails. That's why we booked Michael E. Mann. Uh, a couple of weeks ago that's why we've booked people in past you've put them on our radar and said we'd love to see them on this show and so uh that goes for sachi too several of you have nominated her we're excited about that coming up in about a half an hour's time we're going to talk to the winners we'll call it the winner's circle real talk roundtable on this friday uh live at about 9:05 a.m mountain 11:05 am eastern if you're streaming this if you listen to it later about a half hour from now the winners of yesterday's university of alberta faculty of graduate studies and research 3mt competition this is the three minute thesis competition you know we've all talked to somebody that's very very like high level smart way smarter than the rest of us researcher innovator whatever the case may be and we can't really get a handle on what it is they're doing like they're kind of they're kind of they can't even talk down to us low enough that we can understand it. These three were elevated amongst their peers. And that's saying something because yesterday's uh, competition, which I was so honored to host was an incredible display of what's going on there in that faculty. 15 finalists presented three, their three minute thesis, uh, a three minute summary made accessible. I'm talking like at an intellectual level to people like me, to common folk uh, explaining about the work that they're doing. And we're going to learn about what our, uh, our three winners, our first runner-up, our first place, and our People's Choice winner are working on, why it's exciting for them. You're going to get a chance to see some of the innovation that's underway, some of the research that's being done at one of Canada's most prominent and largest universities. That's coming up. And then Racky Pancholi is going to join us. This prompted this essentially, this booking kind of happened live on yesterday's show. Yep. <laughs> we were talking to Brad West from Glengarry Child Care. Brad was, uh, as you could, if you if you watched the interview, uh, I was about to say he was pretty upset, but then let me say he was very well composed and very well spoken. But you can feel it, like when you heard him talking about what the end of the twenty five dollar a day childcare initiative, what the end of that funding is going to mean for so many families and for his business and for essentially childcare across. The province, the guy was, I mean, the guy didn't mince words when it came to how he felt about this government's performance. You can find that interview yesterday. I encourage you to download the podcast. If you didn't watch it on YouTube, check that out or even check out the 
you know, the minute or minute and a half long clip that I tweeted out yesterday. You'll see what I'm talking about. Racky reached out. She's the official opposition critic for Children's Services. She says, hey, we're working on a lot of things. We'd love to put it in front of the audience. And if you were watching or listening to yesterday's show, you know that we essentially kind of completed that booking while we were live. Sometimes that just happens on Twitter. People are going, you should get Racky. She chimes in. She says, I'm in. I said, okay, 945. She goes, yeah, so here she is. Uh, she's going to be coming up in about an hour and 10 minutes from now. Uh, so that'll be a good one. Plus, it's Friday, so trash talk is coming up. I have what I think nobody's might be, angry about anything. Nobody's angry week. about anything right now. Yeah. Um, so it's mostly about like you know gasoline prices and things like that. Um, you know, sort of global economic. No, no, it's not. It's a very pointed and focused. But if you think it's going to be all about curriculum, think again because I've, I've what I've done is I've I've curated it this week. And so Friday's trash talk presented by Local Waste is going to be one you won't want to miss. I it, it's kind of rude what I'm doing right now. Actually, I'm in front of a microphone with a lozenge in my mouth. Um, I'm not going to say the brand, even though it's so fun to sing because, well, they don't pay for us to say it, Sam. We only say things when people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I've got a Ricola lozenge in my mouth. And that's this not because I have a sore throat nor because I'm sick. But it's because I know that in approximately 75 to 90 minutes from now, I'm going to go absolutely ballistic on an edition of Trash Talk that sometimes leaves me rendered incapable of expressing myself. It takes such a toll on my voice box. Can you imagine what it would be like? Is it is it a little bit serendipitous that like, you know, probably one of our most explosive trash talks yet comes right before a four day weekend? Like like you're going to need some recovery time, aren't I'm you? I'm going to need some recovery time. I'm going to take full advantage. I'm going to put the phone down and shut it off. And it would be great to hear from real talkers. What are what are your long weekend plans? Your Easter long weekend, whatever you're celebrating. Uh, maybe you're on the precipice of Ramadan, whatever. You're, what, or, or maybe you're just like looking forward to getting outside. Maybe you don't observe religious traditions, but you can't wait for a couple of days off this Friday might be your first day off in a long time or maybe you're joining us from home in sweatpants like you've done with everybody else for the last 14 months either way it's going to be a great show we're glad you're hanging out with us probably a good time to remind all of you that join us uh, especially those of you that join, join us live that wake up in the morning this is the bitcoin well music and just leave it going it's okay. I know. No, just leave it going. Leave it going. I love it because I can. I can. I, everything in life should be done with a music bed under it. I. As a matter, I mean, imagine just you know. Imagine washing the dishes to this tune. Like you kind of fall into a rhythm. This you know is what good I'm strutting around twist music. Twist and twist and dry. Twist and rinse and twist and dry. Uh, but we're working today, right? Obviously, here we are live on this April second. That means though that we're going to take next. Tuesday off. All right. So we're going to come to you live again next Wednesday morning. It means positive reflections presented by Kubi Energy. All of your happy stories, your pay it forward stories, your random acts of kindness submitted to talk at ryanjesperson.com will still make it into next week's shows. But we're going to be off, Sam and I, taking days off, spending time with our families. Monday, Tuesday, we'll be back live Wednesday at 8.30 a.m. Mountain Time. Bitcoin Well has been the presenting sponsor of this show ever since we launched. As a matter of fact, they were with us way before then, and we're super grateful for it. They're helping us, as a matter of fact, a little peek behind the curtain, tiny little peek behind the curtain. My personal story, my, my personal connection with Bitcoin, well, involves me trusting them to guide me through my entry into crypto. And we're finding a balance on what we're comfortable with for the business, for the business of this show, to invest in a little bit of crypto. How much do I understand about it? Basically nothing. And they help me make sense of it all. They can do the same for you. It's all about this financial sovereignty idea. 
It's worth checking out. That's all I'll say. Check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So, yeah, it's a little weird that in promoting today's show, I let everybody know how excited we are to welcome Sachi Cool, senior culture writer for BuzzFeed, to the show. I say we'll be talking in my promotional tweet about QAnon, Ramona Quimby, and a list of people that Sachi's mad at, but, but I think we can pull it off. I'm so excited uh, to welcome her to the show based out of New York City this morning. Thanks for making time for us. <laughs> the uh, Okay, I almost think, like, where do we start? Because your sub stack is amazing, and I want to talk to you about the future of media <laughs> and where talented writers are going. And every week, I was hitting refresh this morning, like, is this week's list up yet? This week's list of people that Sachi's mad at? Where, where did you get the idea? Is this a cathartic exercise for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm just mad. It's not that complicated. Like, I don't. It's not like I have some rich backstory. I'm just mad all the time. I was like, maybe I should write this down. Well, it's really great because let's click on here. Sam, we can even share the screen. People can check it out at, at sachi.substack.com. We'll go to your your March 19th list, and and some of it's kind of fun, right? Like the cat driving you nuts with her night screaming and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also some serious business, and I'm glad that you get to it. You say, I'm so tired about talking about whether past instances of racism should preclude you from working in a high-profile management job in media. It seems like when you're talking about, you know, you say you're mad all the time. I mean, and you say it with a bit of a smile on your face, but you also offer excellent, pointed conversation. Are you convinced that some of these tough, difficult, uncomfortable, timely conversations, are you convinced that they're, they're happening more in a way that's going to actually make a tangible impact on institutions like media? I mean, maybe, I don't know. It kind of remains to be seen. Progress happens really slowly. So I think uh, over the last <laughs> hundred years, there have been things that have changed. And, and so I don't know if it's if we're more susceptible to having things change now than we were 10 years ago, but... I mean, I think uh, every brick that can be taken out of that kind of a wall is is probably a good thing. Yeah, no kidding. How, how are you making sense of what you're? I mean, people should we should we should note you're actually. Is it true that you're born in Calgary? Is that right? Born and raised. Yeah, I born was there until I was seventeen. Wow, where'd you go to high school? <laughs> I don't tell that because I don't want people to go look up like my photo at the high school oh, i don't i don't on. talk about that okay well i'll tell you i i went to henry it's Wiseman. also it's not it, oh well see i didn't go to Wiseman. That's you didn't all you go to Wiseman. okay so we so we've established we do not have that in common um no. if anybody tracks down no, my Wisewood would have been a competitor oh like i wouldn't if i had met you in high school i wouldn't even have spoken to you if you told me that you went to Wiseman. if i were to look we're getting really inside baseball now for for our, our niche <laughs> audience uh, down in calgary but maybe they'll be entertained by all of this if i'm if i'm to revisit my high school career of where the most vicious rivalries existed i would predict i mean the fact that you've identified me as a, as a rival as a henry Wisewood warrior i would predict that you attended either lord beaverbrook ep scarlet James Fowler, St. Francis. Yeah. Are you just naming all the high schools? I'm because naming all Fowler's the high schools. I was trying to study I was trying to study your face and see if I could mm-hmm. pick up any pick anything yeah. up from there. But yeah, that's how magician work too. They just sort of name every card until they find the one that is yours. Fortune tellers, yeah. palm readers. I mean, these are sure. this is the whole craft, and it's the mark. Yeah. I mean, if I do, say, it's the mark of a great interviewer. Really, is what it is. 
Versace. <laughs> the entire reason I ask about you growing up in Calgary is obviously, I think, as, as a Canadian, um, and now you work in the United States, obviously you're read internationally. You've, you've got an interesting perspective on media. Plus, you know, you're a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed. You're on digital media. You've got your sub stack. You are evolving your career. Uh, and, and, and in a way, obviously I'm, I guess, involving my career and we see a lot of, a lot of media folks doing that at the same time we see, you know, layoffs at the Huffington post, a buddy of mine in Vancouver just lost his job on terrestrial radio. People are being, newsrooms are being called. What do you make of what you're seeing in media? Most, most particularly in Canada. Oh, well, I mean, the landscape in Canada is really bleak, uh, I like the, the thing about like the HuffPost layoffs with, with HuffPost Canada in particular is that when you get rid of that newsroom, it's very clear that that was a, that was a lot of people. It was a lot of people from underrepresented groups. And a lot of those people might not get jobs in media because they don't exist anymore. So it's really become a freelancer ecosystem. Um, it's dire. And I don't know why. You know, I, I think sometimes you see layoffs happen and you're like, but that was a company that seemed profitable. I mean, everything that's happening with Medium is bonkers. I mean, how many times can you shut down every publication that you run? How many times can you do mass layoffs? Um, I have survived, I think, four or five mass layoffs in my 10 years working in the industry. So I don't know. I wish I had answers. If I did, I would give them to somebody with some power. Yeah, well, I and and I don't. That's why I kind of you know you look and people will acknowledge and say you know the advertising model is broken with newspaper or there's you know you can I can understand certain things you know you don't yeah. have to be Paul Godfrey to understand. No, I, I say that facetiously. Well, Paul, but, I don't think I don't think Paul Godfrey actually understands. No, I don't. It Paul either, Godfrey so doesn't seems, understand yeah. anything but padding his pockets. Let me be no, clear. I'm not, but, I'm not sure that's the person <laughs> I would look to. But I, but I think like I mean it's a, it's an issue of there being multiple variables. It's not just totally. the ad sales and it's not just the fact that people don't want to pay for news and it's not just the fact that certain media companies are owned by people who don't really care <laughs> about the people they've employed and don't necessarily care about news and so there's all these different factors uh that come into play so it's impossible to just sort of diagnose it with one uh one solution or, or yeah. one um, i think you're you know infection i think you're you're bang on this might seem like a, a bit of a bizarre comparison but work with me for a second when you say that you know you're not sure that the big corporations care about the people or the news and i think you're absolutely correct because if you think about you know the argument to keep small town papers open or the argument to keep small town radio or tv operating um, through some tough years or what, choppy waters, whatever the case may be, comes down to news is important, journalism is important. It, it's almost like kind of a, almost a bit of a moral argument. Like this is an important part of society, holding government accountable, this type of thing. Now here's where kind of the weird comparison comes in, but I think it works. It's the same sort of idea here in Western Canada, the argument around ethical oil, right? People say, well, you should be buying oil from Canada. You shouldn't be buying oil from places like Venezuela or wherever there's H, you know, human rights concerns, the Saudis. But the fact of the matter is the market doesn't care about your feelings. The market doesn't care about things like ethical oil. And I think that that in large part is why that argument has failed for about 20 years now. And I kind of wonder if it's the same sort of a thing. If people say, well, small town journalism is important. Sure is. And that's why crowdfunding stuff is happening and grassroots independent organizations are coming up. But I don't think that's going to convince, you know, big trillion dollar firms in the U.S. that hold newspapers as part of whatever they're providing shareholder return on. No, probably not. I mean, I don't. I mean, 
<laughs> Comparing news to oil is indeed a very uh, Albertan thing to do. Sure it is. Sure it is. But you know what? I think that maybe it's something that maybe it's something that works. Actually, I might be onto something. I might write a column on this. Sachi, <laughs> this is what happened. Can, can I talk to you for 15 minutes every week and just like ramp up my sure. ramp up my thought process? Why not? When Beverly Cleary died, I it felt like so many people felt such a personal loss because she played such a huge role in people's development. You wrote the most wonderful piece at BuzzFeedNews.com. It was such a personal exercise for you, I have to say. It must have been. Well, I guess. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I reveal far more in, in columns than I did in that one, but... Uh, I just wrote something short about uh, Ramona the Pest, which was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. And like the lovely thing about that book is it's a book for brats, I think written ultimately by somebody who was kind of bratty themselves. And, and you know, Beverly did say in an interview a couple of years ago that what one thing that people really like about Ramona is that she doesn't really get better. There isn't like a moment of reflection for this six to eight year old. And all of a sudden she becomes like a good kid just kind of a pest her whole life. And that's just who she needs to be because she's the smallest and the youngest and the one asking for attention. And uh, that's kind of admirable, especially for little girls. You don't get a lot of that. There's a lot of um, princess making in mm. literature for kids. Yeah, well said. Uh, you write there weren't and still aren't a lot of books about irritable little brown girls with sharp tongues, bad attitudes, and short attention spans. But Ramona the Pest was remarkably close yeah it was a it was a uh an ode to my undiagnosed adhd as a child which i really appreciate you when you just said you know you just said you go i feel like i reveal far more you know than you do in your columns you're uh whoever's not following you on twitter uh, at sachi needs to you can link to it from the tweet that we send out every morning but you really do i mean even just like let's we can show your twitter bio right like it's it's funny but you're also like, I love it because you just you just say it like being depressed used to be my brand. But now everyone is. I, yeah, I, I used to have a real shtick and then COVID hit. And now everybody's sad. It's just messing with your entire model. It's messing with I your know. entire brand. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to rebrand to surprise everybody and go full like optimistic, cheerful person. Pe people that, wouldn't, that know would <laughs> people yeah. wouldn't know what to do with you. People wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah, there's no way. But do you do you make a conscious effort? I mean, is, is this how you how you've always been? Have you always been someone that, you know, wears her heart on her sleeve? Have you always been somebody that that throws it out there and lives publicly, so to speak? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think I live publicly. I think my job just is forward facing. Uh, writing is a is a rare job where when you do it poorly, people will send you an email about how you did it poorly and tell you about how they can do it better and how they don't think you should have a job anymore. And also, preferably, they would love if you killed yourself. So uh, I don't think I necessarily have made my job public. I think it's just the nature of being a non-white uh, woman in this industry. You can't really hide. Um, but I probably lack shame so that's probably why I'm happy to talk about whatever, you know, I'm sure me and my therapist can cover that later, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you like to be serious for a second, uh, like the, the, the death threats and all the bullshit, like th those types of emails. Um, I've seen some, I bet you've seen way more. H how do you manage all that kind of stuff, especially in the context of you say as a woman, 
uh, as a woman of color, I mean, some of the violence that we're seeing targeting, uh, you know, Canadians of Asian descent, South Asian women in Georgia, I don't have to list every single example. And, and quite frankly, there are yeah. so many that it'll shatter your heart. Are you seeing a, a, a ramping up of of that type of attack? Of that, uh, is, has the temperature heated up um, even in particular to what what's sent your way? I, I think the, the temperature got really hot when Trump was in office and you could tell there was a kind of hostility to the kind of reporting that I do and the kind of publication I work for. Um, I don't think I noticed an uptick in harassment as, an, as a South Asian person. I think that was pretty steady. And I think also the kind of Asian I am is not the kind of Asian that's been targeted in a lot of the hate crimes around COVID misinformation. So that isn't something that I can really speak to, but I, have, I haven't noticed it getting worse because I feel like it's always been bad. And I know uh, I know when I publish something exactly what's going to happen. I know what kind of emails I'm going to get. And sometimes I don't have the energy to do it, unfortunately. That's like the real loss in this. There are so many uh, writers of color, non-binary people, queer people, women, uh, people of color who don't write certain things because the blowback is just so exhausting and sometimes you just don't want to deal with it. I mean, like I have never gotten more angry death threats in my life than when I wrote about how I thought Friends was a bad show. What? So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter like what uh, what political argument I might be making as an opinion writer. There is always somebody who's angry. I, like, I, I still get emails because I said that I didn't like the live action Aladdin. Which, as a brown person, I reserve the right to not like the live action Aladdin. What else do I have? I don't have anything else. As this a, is all I get. As a brown person, you, you can reserve the right to not even like the animated Aladdin. I mean, Wait, as far the as- the animated Aladdin is good. Is I would it? never say that. Yes, yes, it's a good movie. Obviously, there are parts of it that don't necessarily hold up, but it was the 90s. What do you want me to do about it? I was three, but <laughs> I, mean, I still get emails about- movie reviews from two years ago where like, oh, I wrote, uh, I don't know, something about Jeffrey Tubin, And so then yeah. I get emails about Jeffrey Tubin. I mean, like it's, it, I don't, I haven't noticed it getting worse. I mean, I think if it has gotten worse, maybe that's a function of, of me be, becoming more public and, and having, you know, I get it, you know, get different audiences come to your work on different pieces. But. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I, yeah. I'm trying to think of the, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like, you know, you commenting on friends and earning yourself death threats. I can't, I mean, that's yeah, I don't have anything people to compare really to that. need stuff to do. Everybody's got to go get a hobby. Yeah. Were or, you a, did like, you come into it with like a pro Seinfeld bias? Did, did you write pro, it through? I mean, a, probably. Yeah, but you, yeah. I but I grew up watching both. Like I can Ooh, say okay. friends is bad because I watched all of it. And that I was remember Thursday night, first, right? Thursday night block. I would watch Seinfeld with my dad. I'd watch friends with my mother. And then I'd watch Frasier by myself. Frasier. <laughs> Yeah, but I remember that block, and I've seen every episode of all three shows, so I feel like I can definitively tell you which one's not very good, and I know which one's not very good. Mm. Is Seinfeld the greatest TV show of all time? No. Is it in the top five? Maybe. I mean, th those questions are so hard to answer because they're, they're totally subjective. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, also like those shows are really influential. So whether or not they're good or not, they it has it it changed the way comedy was written and the way TV was written. So, I mean, I think it was a really good show. I love Seinfeld and I still watch it. Yeah. Um, there's do you, lots of people uh, who don't. I don't do you um, that. 
do you do you have a show that would like I mean we have the senior culture writer of BuzzFeed News out of New York on the show kind of a big deal right now I mean sure, you, yeah I mean it's a huge deal uh <laughs> if you were put on the spot and said were, were asked for your opinion on what the greatest yeah. television show of all time is would you have an answer I know for me the show that I go to the most is probably 30 rock because I think it had some of the best. I mean, there is a joke every 30 seconds in that show and the way that it's written is so uh, it's so well-written. It's so, uh, it's so fine-tuned. It's so clever. I mean, like, I don't know. I think that's the show. And then I actually feel that way about Arrested Development in the first three seasons in particular, that show is like who, like, I don't know how they wrote it. It's like you watch it and you're like, this like math. It's like, how do they put this together? To me, it's to me, that's number one. Arrested Development, number one. And some people may wrinkle their brow at this. And if they do, I don't think they understand the show. But I actually think Trailer Park Boys is like a top three Mm -hmm. show of all time for the same reason. It's crude. It's crass. It's low budge. Uh, That's the whole point. It's the whole point. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, we wouldn't sort of like show it to your grandmother, maybe, or maybe you would, but I just think like it's the same sort of a thing where it, the humor is just incredible. Yeah. I don't think I ever watched that. Oh, I, you I might love ever, it. I know. I think I might, but I, it never, uh, I don't know. It, well, it's, it's because, it, it, well, it's because you're an intellectual and, and so you, yeah, pro- I, you yeah, you're right. You, 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 yeah, you you're, you're right. so, you're so up. You're one of the elites. And so, yeah, probably- I mean, listen, I've, I've been saying that for many years. I'm too smart for almost everything. And that's why I don't engage with it. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, people need to walk a mile in your shoes for once, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey, did you, when you were, uh, you know, when you penned that piece on friends, perhaps you didn't expect the blowback you got. But, but what about this one at BuzzFeedNews.com when, when you took on the phenomenon that is Q and QAnon? Yeah. And, I mean, you just wrote about this. I, I thought that your report was absolutely incredible, including your ongoing conversation with Ashley Vanderbilt. Can you take yeah. us into her story? It's, it's quite a journey. Ashley's really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. She's 27. She's got, uh, I think she's got a four-year-old daughter. Uh, she lives in South Carolina and she kind she got really sucked into Q last fall. She lost her job and she, I guess, had a lot of time to be on the internet and a family friend brought her into Q. She brought her cousin into Q. Uh, once I found her right around inauguration in January, she was posting on TikTok a lot because she was realizing that a lot of the stuff she believed was cult-like uh and she was trying to deprogram herself and so over the course of a few months um we talked a lot and and she has got she went from being a Q believer that was like trying to get out of it and didn't really know how and wasn't really sure if everything that was a part of Q was wrong or if there were certain pieces she could keep to fully deprogramming herself and realizing that everything she kind of believes politically might not actually be uh, how she feels. I think she's one of those people who was just raised being told you're a Republican and and that's who you are. And uh, I think now she's having a lot of doubt. So what do you think happened? I mean, you write about how, how, you know, Q and, and the posts have kind of gone off the radar, I guess is the way to put it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of how everything flared up on January 6th, I, I like everybody else, I mean, this is the most obvious thing to say, but I will never forget where I was that day. I will never forget spending the afternoon just aghast, 
sitting in this exact seat off air, looking at our studio monitors, watching news coverage, just going, what the fuck? Like, what is this? I mean, security guards and police officers being beaten with American flagpoles. I mean, what is I mean, the, the imagery there. And then everybody's saying, well, Joe Biden's got a big task in front of him, like to heal the nation and to bring it together. And, you know, we talked to an infectious disease doctor yesterday who said that a big part of the whole like mass thing, dampening the curve, the variance is that there's there's a whole subsect of people that are operating just with completely alternative facts, alternative evidence. They don't believe. I mean, there's just you're, she says you're kind of not going to get them on board ever. You can probably say the same sort of a thing. And I mean, hey, you know, tens of millions of people still voted for Donald Trump. Ten, tens of millions of people, I would imagine, are still feeling disillusioned and somewhat inspired to not rule everything out, if you know what I mean. I mean, is, is there this kind of bubbling below the surface, do you think, right now? What do you, what do you think? I mean, a huge question, but what do you think the future of the United States looks like? I mean, it's not bubbling below the surface. They'll tell you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair. Talk, he's got to talk to somebody. It's not even <laughs> below the surface. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Biden's going to heal the nation thing is nonsense. No, he's not. Uh, I mean, he's a centrist Democrat. I mean, I don't like no one's going to by the end of his first term, no one's going to be happy with him. That's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, I don't think healing the country is necessary. I think a massive re-education program is necessary. I mean, a lot of the times when we talk about the people who've been sucked into Q, some of them have predispositions to Q because they uh, were raised with racists or they were raised with uh, anti-Semitic family members or they have something, you know, no one's born a racist, they learn it. So someone taught them that you can re-educate somebody out of it. But then there's also another side of it that there's just people who don't know what news outlets to read, don't know that they should, don't think about the information that they receive. Ashley is one of those people. She never had, she was, she never read a news source. She just would read stuff on Facebook and take it for face value. And then we're in an interview and she's talking about how she thinks Dominion, the voting machines are owned by Nancy Pelosi's husband. It's a Canadian company, you know, like it, that and that's one of those things that kind of goes back to the death of media if you have fewer journalists who are able to fact check things and are able to provide you with correct information then it's not going to be done but i mean we're at a weird place now where even if we have those people to do that work there's such a huge swath of the country that just doesn't believe journalists they they think that we're all out to get them as if there's some you know grand plot against everybody else but yeah, man. I mean, it's not done. Like none of this stuff is done. None of it's over. I would not be surprised if the sovereign citizens became a much more vocal force in, in the U.S. in the next few years. I think uh, COVID has delayed certain reactions that we would have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, vaccination rates are picking up here and things are starting to open up. So it's going to be a really weird summer. Well, we'll uh keeping an eye will continue to keep an eye on uh, your incredible writing obviously encourage everybody that's going to hear this podcast later or that's watching live now or whatever to follow you on social media including on twitter at sachi it's one of my favorite follows uh, thrilled that you agreed to join us and talk to us today from from your home in new york thanks so much for this and I look forward to talking thanks again for sometime me. sachi cool senior culture writer uh with buzzfeed news that was fantastic, and I'm and I'm loving this as well. The the real talkers that are live on our uh, chat right now, the, you have to know, Sam, that we would hit a nerve immediately when when we ask what's the greatest TV show of all time. And I was curious to see what you were going to say 
I do agree with Scarlett as well. And here's what I'm, I'm just going to be so wishy-washy and non-committal because I've already gone on the record and said that Arrested Development, I think I said is the greatest TV show. What I should have done is a politician style answer uh, where I said something like many people would argue that it's the greatest or it is one of the greatest or it is among the greatest because Scarlett now says, uh, correction, Veep is the greatest TV show of all time. And, and I could be convinced, maybe not, I mean, geez, I don't know if it's the greatest of all time, but it's it's got to be top five. Julie- I, I will admit that I've never watched Veep. I what? Should. I love Julie Dreyfus. Yeah. Sam! <laughs> I know, I, okay, maybe that's my Easter Sam! long weekend project, is binging Veep. Oh, you will, because I was, I was actually a little, I got to be honest, I was a little weirded out when you didn't, because you're a physical response guy, you're a wave your arms and smile and laugh guy, and when you essentially offered me a non-response when I invoked Veep, it weirded me out a little bit. I took it as though you were not excited about the program. I think you're going to love it. Well, and that's just it. Like, by all accounts, I should love it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an oversight that I haven't watched it yet. I, I, will, I will almost go so far as to guarantee you will love it. Like, I would almost guarantee you will love it. Some random guy says Friends was really fun, but it didn't age well. I treat it like a time capsule of culture in the 90s and 2000s. Fatima says the animated Aladdin is problematic. She says, I say this as an Arab person. The tunes slap, though. The tunes slap. They do. They absolutely do. And Robin Williams was amazing as Genie. Robin Williams. The Watcher says Frasier is still wonderful. Uh, Wigwith says Friends just got popular because of Seinfeld. Uh, Christine says Mad About You was in there. Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser had kind of a good thing going. I, I see that as like, there's, there's a, there's a, Mad About You, no offense, anyone, Christine included. Mad About You is kind of like, it, it, it's like if it, if it got a grade, it would be like a B plus. Like, pretty good. B plus is pretty good. I don't know if it's even got an A, maybe got an A, maybe to get an A minus, maybe. We're seeing a lot of love from, for MASH. Uh, we're seeing love for Golden Girls. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we got to go back, right? You know, some random guy says Corner Gas is also underrated. Oh, I he, would agree with that. I love Corner Gas. And then, and then I'm completely, Stephanie makes a f- very good argument. Marie says All in the Family. Can you imagine a show like All in the Family coming out now? Can you, like, whoo, whoo, um, and, uh, okay, so Stephanie argues for The Office. I mean, how do we not put The Office in there? Like, the British version. I mean, the American version's great. The British version is unbelievable. The American version got better the moment it stopped trying to be the British version, right? Like, season one of the American version was very weird. It's like it word for word. word for word, yeah. yeah. And then when they kind of evolved the character of Michael Scott to be his own quirky, not Ricky Gervais manager... Uh, it was, uh, I think it just kind of took off from there. I actually want to circle back to Trailer Park Boys, and only because when you brought that up and Sasha just like, or you said Sasha's an intellectual, she wouldn't watch it. And I will fully admit to being an, an, an intellectual who for years said Trailer Park Boys is stupid and I want nothing to do with it. And then I just got hooked on it. It's it is brilliant. so brilliant. It is so well written. It's so funny. It flies under the radar. The low production value is what makes it so good. Yeah. Like it yeah. I agree. I do agree. I mean if you if you don't respect Trailer Park Boys, you probably either haven't watched it. Well, these are fighting words. But I mean it. You either haven't watched it or you don't get it. <laughs> if you don't if you don't think it's amazing, 
that, when it first came out, people thought it was a documentary. This is a. I just got. I, and I do agree with you. Yeah. I, sorry. I just. You know. <laughs> sometimes I'll read something that's a little bit heavy. Yeah. No, that's fair. Like like this from Greg. I just read this He's on the chat. Like everyone's talking about favorite TV shows, and then Greg says, "I lost my childhood friend to QAnon." After more than 45 years of friendship, we can no longer talk about anything. I feel you, Greg. I've got a... Oh, I don't want to get into it. I've got a buddy I just can't deal with anymore. And uh, I told him so yesterday on Twitter. I can't handle it anymore. And I, if you feel terrible, but it's like, I, I'm sorry, man. Like, I, I just, what, what can you say? What can you say? Share your stories with us. You can reach us anytime. Talk at Ryan Jesperson. Now I'm just like, oh... It's, isn't it you, you see somebody that you know that you care about that that is an otherwise this is going to come across like me being a real prick and I'm not trying to be but somebody that otherwise has been relatively intelligent and intuitive and has seen red flags everywhere and like you know thin ice don't walk on it you know hot pan don't put your hand on it basic stuff angry dog don't try to pet it like these types of things and then they and then they start reading about how you know, pedophiles are meeting at a pizza place to and and like all the, you know, the secret services there with the president and it's in the basement and, and all of a sudden it makes sense. Like this is probably happening. You're like, what in the hell is I digress. We're getting to a round table in a few minutes. Uh, you know, people are tuning in right now. They're going to be watching live because they know that at 9.05 a.m., which was, you know, I mean, if, if you're watching us live, you know, that was four minutes ago. If you're watching this later, you're like, who cares? Uh, that was supposed to be when we're going to check in with our three MT winners, our three-minute thesis winners, and instead we're talking about losing people to QAnon, and people are going to be going, "What's what on earth is going on? That's how real talk rolls. That's the whole beauty of it, and we're so grateful to have so many of you along with us on this ride. You know, a great way to check in with the show is the hashtag RealTalkRJ. It's powered every show by the team at Park Power. They're in the internet, electricity, and natural gas game. And they're great friends of Real Talk and Real Talkers, so much so that if you want to take your business over to them, and why wouldn't you? you got to pay somebody for these services. At parkpower.ca, if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, they're going to give you $70 off your first bill. Plus, you can feel good about it, knowing that 10% of their profits go to nonprofits in the communities that their employees live in and work. Very cool stuff with Park Power. We're also very proud to be partners with Kubi Energy. As mentioned, next Wednesday, which is our next live show, Kubi Energy will present positive reflections. We start our week off on a positive right foot forward, so to speak. All the left-handers are going to go, what do you talk, what, what's that sort of, sort of like infused messaging? No, hey, listen, you know, start your week off on the right, correct left foot, if you like, with Kubi Energy. Put that on a coffee mug. Kubi Energy is Tesla certified. They have uh, installers, experts that are either journeyman electricians or electrical apprentices, so you know the job's getting done right. And whether it's commercial, residential, industrial, the team at Kubi handles all the paperwork so you can get the rebates and the refunds and tap into those government incentives where they apply. That's with Kubi Energy. We're really proud to partner with the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. I've told you that our pups, Moses and Monroe, love the Grand Dog Essentials Raw Food, plus the additions that we're kicking in, like blueberries for Monroe. That's because we talked to the nutritional experts on their team. You can access them via granddog.ca. They love working with you to find the solution that's right for your dog, and they deliver to your door 
When you're on their website, if you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll give you 10% off your first-time order delivering to Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta. All right, I'm very excited for this conversation. I had a chance to to meet and 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 learn from and chat with these three remarkable graduate students and researchers. That was yesterday, April 1st, as the University of Alberta's Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research presented their annual 3MT competition. That's the 3-minute thesis. Basically, we're about to meet three people that are way smarter than most of us, including me, but they're going to try to make the subject of their research accessible so we can understand it. It's a total pleasure to welcome to the program um, Shubham Sony, Shubham Sony, uh, Christina Moline Cherneski, and Nozima Faiziva. Welcome to the program. I feel like I can call you friends. It's great to see your faces again after yesterday's big event. Good morning. morning. Okay, so here's the deal. You're going to have to dumb down your research so we can all understand it, all right? And so I want to kind of tee it up for you, and then we want to go bigger picture and understand more about the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research and and maybe what it means for the communities where you all live and work. But, Shabam, why don't we start with you? That You, yesterday, taught us about a about a essentially a solution like actually a liquid solution uh, a subject matter that some people might be familiar with if they understand the keto diet but your application is totally different can you explain yeah um so the principle in a lot of ways is similar so i guess just for everyone listening the basic principle and idea is um ketones which have you know 100 years ago uh, when they were originally found in diabetic patients, it was associated with like a negative thing and something that's harmful for the body. And then over the next century, so over the last hundred years, we've come to learn, no, they're not necessarily so bad. They have important uh, roles in the development of the body and you're, they're helpful for your brain in certain cases and so on and so forth. But only about eight years ago, actually, did we discover that ketones can also help reduce inflammation in pathological or basically any kind of a variety of disease states. And so the idea kind of came about of, well, one of the biggest disease states or one of the most inflammatory disease states there are is, uh, is sepsis. So any kind of infection which becomes severely worse and worse. And so maybe we can use ketones to treat that. And yeah, like you mentioned, it's a little bit different than the ketogenic diet. There's, lots of controversies in science and there's still lots of studies being done regarding the ketogenic diet, its beneficial effects and also its harmful effects. Um, but we're taking a different spin and a different angle on it from this recent ketone drink that was made in Oxford, Oxford a few years back. Um, and it's been tested in the US military, it's been tested in elite rowers, elite cyclists, and it's consistently shown to boost their performance as an extra source of energy. Um, and that's, you know, that's primarily what we know ketones to be. Uh, but over the last eight years, like I said, we're also exploring the anti-inflammatory roles that ketones have and now trying to repurpose it for therapeutic uses in the clinic. Shabam, when, when I was uh, watching your three-minute thesis and, and uh, you know, you, you did a remarkable job of, of making information accessible in a relatively short period of time, what really caught my attention was the assertion that sepsis and maybe you can explain this to us, sepsis factors in, if I'm understanding this correctly, it factors in 
to one in five deaths around the world. I mean, I'm not sure many people would realize that. Yeah, and I, I completely, I, it blew me away as well. So, I mean, just to take a step back really quickly myself. Um, so me as a person, I guess I do a lot of research in heart failure and diabetes, and I've also moved into pregnancy now. And sepsis came to be uh, slightly more recently. I never thought I'd get into it. But yeah, when I'm doing the reading behind it, and in terms of writing um, some of my work on it right now as well, you come to learn about the fact that, yeah, the estimation is that one in five people across the world die because of sepsis. And of those one in five people, actually approximately 50% are the pediatric population. So children under, children under the age of five um, and uh, the geriatric population. So the elderly folk. Now, it's not to say that this, you know, this, and this has happened. This, it's not like this is happening in other parts of the world. This is happening in our countries. It's happening in developed nations and it's happening in the States and Canada. And the, the cost burden of this is so great. Um, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was over 350, oh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to muck up this figure here, but it was well into the high hundred millions, um, in the States and it's also growing in Canada, but yeah, at ultimately, uh, one of the last things that someone can experience, um, in addition to several other, you know, comorbidities or other diseases that they might have is sepsis. And that could just be the, um, be the last little uh, I guess, domino to fall over that can make things worse. So then, I mean, I would imagine, I mean, what, how, I guess what I'm asking is how big do you think in the context of, of the application of your research, right? Because if you're talking about yeah. hundreds of millions of instances, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. do you, do you sometimes lie awake at night staring at the ceiling going, this could be huge. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been really excited about this project for the last well, since it kind of started, which is right before COVID happened. And the answer, and the reason for that is not just because of the fact that we can help improve the management of sepsis, but also because say, for example, someone has sepsis and they recover from it. Life isn't all sunshine and rainbows after that. Lots of the stuff that happens to your body during sepsis significantly affects your cognitive function, your motor skills and so on and so forth. And so mitigating the inflammation that, uh, can happen in sepsis. So reducing it and treating it better can also lead to better outcomes after the fact. And right now, as I kind of mentioned in the talk as well, two of the main things that are done to treat sepsis are antibiotics and fluids as well. So people get severely dehydrated, but the one, one of the things is with fluids, if you are giving them like fluids right into their veins, um, you can also throw ketones in with there. So it shouldn't be too difficult of an implementation either. It's not a far-fetched, uh, it's not a far-fetched therapy. And that's why it's incredibly exciting for me as well. For you and probably millions of people. <laughs> like I, I was excited watching it, just thinking about the potential of it, knowing nothing about it or or a little bit after your three-minute tutorial. It was fantastic. Uh, that's Shabam Sony, who was the people's choice winner yesterday by the way that must have meant that must have meant something almost three thousand people cast people's choice votes what did it mean for you to be chosen by the people uh i was taken back uh but i was really happy obviously i i did not see it coming i didn't expect it but i mean yeah i'm really thankful to everyone who i contacted everyone who watched it and also voted for me and then also the judges as well for putting together such a um such a great, I guess, system of showing the presentations, but yeah, it was, it meant a lot. Uh, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, it really did. Fantastic. Uh, first runner-up in, in, in just a, a photo finish, a nail-biter finish. The first runner-up was Nozima Faziva. Uh, and let me tell you, when I was watching and learning a bit about your research, I thought back to my sister, my beloved sister Megan, who, who when she was just over a year old, all of a sudden, her eyes rolled back in her head and her eyelids started to flutter and she had a seizure. And anybody, uh, any parent or caregiver, sibling that is, or individual that's ever experienced something like that or witnessed something like that, I think right now is going to be getting a little closer to their screen or turning up the volume to hear about your research. How did you start looking into what you're looking into at the U of A? So good morning, everyone, again. Um I would say I was also, I had some uh, nephews and nieces who had these problems. Uh, febrile seizures are actually really common in ch childhood, but uh, thankfully all uh, like a lot of them, the most um, percentage of them, they get cured by themselves. So we don't really have to worry about that part, but unfortunately some uh, children may, de may develop epilepsies later on. So I was uh, curious who will develop epilepsy, how we can know it, how we can predict it. And if there is some changes uh, which can be detected early on, so maybe we could focus on those children in other ways and prevent them from developing epilepsy later on too. So it was my, that question was in my head during my medical school years. And I started asking questions about it from my teachers and there were some answers, but there was not one single um, final answer which would answer to this question. And I think research is the best way to answer for those questions. I think research is the way how to people change the world. Maybe you don't do a lot to change the world, but you do. You take some of those small steps to answer uh, for maybe the very small part of the one question, but at the end by overall effort of all people we be able to answer to these important questions one day and that's how we change our world to improve it so it just inspires me to do research about it and to be able to help people in any ways not only in medicine in all fields of the life yeah, our audience members that are watching this live and I guarantee you the people that listen to or watch this later will hear from more. Kim says, I have a niece with epilepsy. She has absent seizures, uh, very hard to evaluate and treat. You can't anticipate them. Kim says, I'm really excited to hear about Nozima's uh, research. Penny says her youngest son developed epilepsy at 30 a year ago, says it's extremely frightening. James uh, says that his son uh, was epileptic, but but grew out of it. It sounds to me like there's all kinds of different scenarios what you did, it, your presentation yesterday was excellent. Sam, let's call up that graphic. You, you, you helped people like me who have not been to medical school or don't understand, uh, you know, this sort of level of research to, to use the idea of a light bulb. And it was such an effective metaphor to use. Could I ask you to kind of recreate that for our audience and explain what happens in the brain of a little one? Sure. Uh... I think light bulb is a very overly simplified view of the brain, but still it's yet uh, interesting and 
I think, simple, easy to understand. So if you imagine a light bulb being a human brain, when it's active during the day, when we are awake, we are working, uh, analyzing something, thinking it's up, like on, lighting. And when we are sleeping, we are calm, it gets off. So it's how our brain works. And, uh, and imagine when person has, like a child has a fever, uh, we can uh, all think that um, it gets uh, brighter, shinier, radiant, and obviously it gets overheated, right? And what happens when like a seizure, when child has a seizure, it just uh, starts going on and off and it lasts long. At that time, brain cannot function properly. Um, sometimes those signals get passed to the other parts of body and it may accompany with other symptoms of seizures or sometimes they don't uh, get signals don't get past the brain so those absence kind of epilepsies absence kind of seizures happen when children just freeze wow um, so. Nozima, are people are people are asking? I, I love this in, audience is so engaged. It's great. Uh, listeners wondering: are are, are febrile seizures the sa- febrile seizures the same as epilepsy, or or even if not, let me ask: could, could your research um, apply perhaps across different boundaries of diagnosis? So uh, there are so many different types, uh, symptoms and syndromes of seizures. Febrile seizure is not an epilepsy, it's just a syndrome. Uh, as I said earlier, it can be just cured by, by itself, just disappear while child, <laughs> child grows and mm. brain gets developed better. Or sometimes it can cause some problems and we need to find in which children exactly, like who can exactly develop this epilepsy. Epilepsy is more like a chronic condition. It is a disease. That is uh, Nozima Faizieva, who's just doing the the coolest work and and helping us plebs understand it through her three-minute thesis. First runner-up, the winner, top cheddar, big cheese, Christina Moline Cherneski, uh, with a presentation that was wildly different than all the others, which I absolutely adored, titled Pockets, Petticoats, and Privacy. Can you take us into it? <laughs> um, yeah, so I study privacy in Victorian Britain. That's just really a broad <laughs> statement. Yeah. Um, but but what I'm what I'm interested in in particular is the ways that people assert their privacy when it looks might look to us like they don't have any. Um, so certainly in the past, people lived very different than us. They had less time to themselves, less space to themselves, especially poorer people. Um, and, and so I wanted to question, even if they're not talking about privacy and they don't use that same language that we do, what privacy looks like for them, um, if they had it at all. And part of what I've found over the course of my research is that I would argue they did and, and, and that they tried to assert it in different ways and claim it if they didn't have it. And, and, and so, yeah, the pockets and the petticoats <laughs> is also ways that, especially women, those are both <laughs> things that, that, that women use to, to 
claim their privacy, um, hiding things on their person because they didn't have a space to themselves, sewing their small personal possessions into hems, things like that. So it, 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 privacy happened in ways that we don't necessarily see or that aren't obvious to us. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it, it's research that sort of tries to question what, where we can find things that, that look different in the past and understand it better. Did we, how, how differently have our, maybe what I should ask you to do is if you kind of set the context of, of when you look back through history, whether it's a couple hundred years or or even 50 years ago, and you might say, especially people without means, uh, maybe perhaps Mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't come across as they were entitled to as much privacy, but I also love that you point out whether it's people watching, you know, Bridgerton or Downton Abbey or, or whatever your favorite, the crown, whatever your favorite show is, um, you made such a great point too people helping them bathe, helping them dress. I mean, is it accurate to say that that people were more apt to surrender? I mean, geez, then look at what we put out on Facebook. Does anybody even care about privacy? Have we ever really cared about privacy? <laughs> and that's partly where my research came from. So, yes, on I start out my 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 three-minute thesis talking about historical dramas as as kind of a way into what I think about, and 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 certainly yeah, whether you were you were poor or you were rich, bodily privacy looked different. Like you say, they had people to bathe them to rich people had people to bathe them to dress them, to to take care of their needs to stand around while they ate, and 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 poor people had shared rooms, slept in the same beds, um, things like that. So. Um, certainly to us, it doesn't look like there's any privacy. Um, but yes, now we have a whole different conception of privacy. <laughs> and, and, and part of what made me wonder about privacy in the past was privacy now. And, and in the last 10 years, this is a misquote of him, but Zuckerberg saying that privacy isn't a social norm anymore and <laughs> things like that, 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 that made me wonder how things like uh, the concept of privacy change over time, or if they do. Because I think part of what I would argue is that it's always been contested and it's never binary. Like you either, it's never been that you don't have privacy or you do. There's nuance to it, right? And and, and so it's it's not that we discovered a right to privacy or that, although in law, I am, I am not a lawyer, <laughs> but in law, certainly there is distinctions there, but I'm looking at sort of more everyday life and how people live. And so it's, it, I would argue there's, 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 there's nuance to everybody's life and we, we assert privacy differently than, than they would then, but we, we still all assert privacy. Do you see, do you think that there's going to be, I mean, people talk about pendulums swinging and, and we can, you know, apply that trend to so many different things. Um, it feels to me, I even look at my own personal life, um, and you know, you have to be a little bit careful. People try to be, you know, I'll see some people that sort of, you know, will blur out their child's face. They'll post a photo, but the face is blurred out or they won't post photos of their kids. Others are like Johnny starts grade one at, you know, Middleton elementary in Mrs. Johnson's class tomorrow. And you're like, Whoa, (laughs) you know I mean? Uh, you know, people, people will have, and, and they're powerful videos, but people will post photo. I'm not being critical, but on Instagram or no. TikTok of, of sobbing or furious or sharing their, because they can amplify their feelings and that's how they can be heard. And it's oftentimes very positive. 
at the same time, we're putting it all out there and it's being monetized and we are being monetized and we are the product, right? Any social platform that's free, you are the product. Do you see the pendulum swinging back? Do you think people are going to start to pull back or what do you forecast? I I generally try to look back and not forward <laughs> as a historian as a historian in training. Um, but but at the at the same time, that's part of what's interesting about history too is how we think how it allows us to to think about our lives and 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 the future. And and yeah, I think I think we've been talking a lot over the last ten years about privacy. And I mean, you see things like. Um, in the in the EU, the right to be forgotten and and sort of different sort of legal challenges and I and 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 who knows what's going to happen with the Biden administration and regulating social media. Um, I, so I think that all is is it's a it's a very dynamic environment. It's and and I and I would argue it always has been. I and that's uh, uh, people as they developed agency in different ways and and try to. Uh, adapt to changing situations in their lives, make different choices and assert different rights or different make different choices in their lives. And so I certainly think people are more conscious of it than they were uh, several years ago. And like you say, some people choose to use it for, for their, for their social lives or their work lives. And some people don't. And, and so there's there's different choices made by different people at different times. And and I think we're just all more aware of it Yeah, Penny, in, in a way that I. I didn't mean to cut you off there. My oh, apologies. No. I was just I just noticed a comment here from one of our viewers, Penny, who says, uh, you know, she comments on the privacy that some of us feel when we're wearing masks. I can relate. Actually, to be honest, I, I kind of don't hate wearing a mask. I'm actually kind of quite enjoying it, especially when you find one that feels comfortable and you I, I actually quite like it. I, I don't know that I ever would have said that before. What's your experience been? Oh my goodness, I hadn't thought of that. That's so interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. We, and 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 I mean, that's the other thing I talked about in my three minute thesis is that what we're showing of our lives on on work calls and and working from home and 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 being home more and and wearing a mask and covering things up or revealing them in different ways is is all part of how we think about what we show to others of ourselves, both physically and sort of psychologically, like what thoughts we share or what emotions we share. So yeah. no, I mean, you can cover up your smile or your not smile, your, <laughs> your, yeah. your frustration with someone with a mask. Although and, they, they may see it in your eyes a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> most of the time. Probably. It's so funny. <laughs> you, you, you made such a good, I mean, look at this. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I'm assuming that the three of you are joining us from home. Maybe not, but, but isn't that true that people, we invite people into our homes Like we talked to a doctor out of Saskatchewan a couple of weeks ago. It was hilarious. He, he admitted live on the show how much it was bothering him that we could all see his toothbrush in the background i i thought that i thought it was hilarious i thought it was real life we've had people on the show that have had messy backgrounds we've had people with really i think of that divorce lawyer sam in vancouver that just had this opulent incredible background um we didn't ask her about her rates <laughs> but i but it's funny isn't it we bring ever i was on a zoom call earlier this week nothing to do with the show but but, but there was a gal on the call with a, like a trifold like one of those things in your rooms you can get dressed behind or whatever and it, it was like a, a woven sort 
sort of a basket type uh, texture. And I and I fa- I I'm honestly found myself trying to kind of like see through, trying to like see behind <laughs> what what was behind the trifold. None of my business. Like, why am I? She brought us into her home. What am I doing? It's like looking in someone's medicine cabinet. I was snooping around, trying to see behind it. Anyway, what a fascinating time. Absolutely amazing. I love that watching the three of you here, Nozima, Shabam, you're, you're, you're both laughing and listening you know, to what your colleague, when she talks about her project, did you, did you feel through this 3MT process, uh, Shabam, did you feel almost like a camaraderie? Did you find yourself almost cheering for, supporting your, your colleagues, your researchers? I mean, it's not exactly like you're all working side by side every day you may barely ever see each other right yeah but at the end of the day like in my case at least I was actually rooting for Nozima because uh, we actually were in like our small group and we were working on our presentations together Uh, we got to help each other kind of build our presentations and update them cool and uh, not to throw you under the bus or anything but uh, it was (laughs) I, I'm really glad with her new visuals that he had that she has with the baby pictures and the lighting because initially it was a little bit scary it was just a baby looking like he had light bulbs all inside of it um, and it's very very updated so I'm really glad that that was the case and I'm really happy for her as well you, you didn't um, want to get the impression what to do if your baby swallows 10 light bulbs yeah that, yeah. It, it, yeah it's so but yeah I, I definitely like we work together um, we work together to help each other out and she you know helped my, improve my presentation as well so uh, I was happy with the process and in, in this case I was actually yeah uh, because I was more familiar with them, uh, Nozima's presentation, and then also Sajani's presentation. She was another presenter as well. Um, but then, of course, you know, after seeing Christina's, it's also, I love that kind of stuff as well, because it's a lot more philosophical and it's a lot more relevant and very topical and timely to, in today's day and age. Um, and outside of research or just thinking of, I guess, uh, societal issues, it can, I can see why it connects with a lot of people, and I really enjoyed it as well. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to start naming some of the other projects because then that means I'm going to exclude some of them. But but I mean, yeah. like you said, uh, you know, even, even with, you know, Christina's being somewhat more philosophical or historical. I mean, they're, they're also different and fascinating. There was there were there were talks about, you know, indigenous consultation from out of the faculty, yeah. from, like an arts perspective on on tailings ponds, which was really an interesting angle to take there. Uh, how to how to Google Maps fit into understanding industrial emissions. I mean, people get that was another one that really impressed me work on on prosthetics and making prosthetics more feel more natural to the to the people that are that are wearing them or utilizing them i mean just subject after subject pro understanding gender fluidity and and pronouns in health research i mean whoa right i mean so cool uh, nozima did you did you have that experience too where, where i mean obviously you're you're presenting your own three-minute thesis but you're probably looking around do you, do you feel almost a sense of pride of what you're seeing from your colleagues Yes, definitely. I was really impressed. I really loved to learn about other projects going on on the campus. I was so impressed that there are so many great people doing great job out there. I think I felt some kind of a pride that I'm a little part of this huge community. And also, as Shubham already said, uh, we helped each other on those work workshops and I started learning about other projects. I got interested in his project. I started asking, is it really a thing that those uh, sports people really drink that ketones, how it works? (laughs) I started questioning and uh, Christine's topic also made me question myself about privacy because I realized that I actually, I also like 
wearing a mask, especially when I'm not really in a good mood or, or I didn't really have a good sleep. I just want to put that mask on and just go like <laughs> on the streets, not look in people's eyes and just being myself. So I think it is really interesting and impressive. Yeah. I really liked everybody's work. That's such a good point. I, this is a true story. I found myself the other day. I had to actually physically go into the bank for the first time in a long time. And I pulled up and I was wearing a mask, my sunglasses and a ball cap down low. And I realized like at no other time in human history, could you walk into a bank? I mean, I did take the sunglasses off, but it's like, what on earth? Like, how are these bank tellers? They must have 15 heart attacks a day when people are walking through the door based on their training. Shamam, I can't go any further without asking. People are going to say like, what is this magic potion that people keep talking about that cyclists drink that is legal that essentially i'm going to exaggerate but allows them to in that final mile push through that final kilometer and win the tour de france what is this magical potion because people are going to want to write it down sure um it's so there's actually a variety of them they're basically called ketone esters um and a lot are made the one that we're using like i said it was one that was developed at oxford um, and it's on a website, HVMN. I'm not trying to market them or anything. It's not what I'm saying. But basically, the the way these kind of work is, so the key, like if you take a, if you look at it from like a bigger picture, you can't really eat ketones. It's not really a thing. So these like synthetically made molecules are made. It's just two ketone molecules that are combined together. And then when you ingest this as a drink, um, as soon as they get into your gut, they take, they're broken down relatively quickly into two ketone molecules. And that's what elevates and spikes your ketone levels, uh, in your blood for a couple of hours. And while that's happening, you're providing more ketones to your muscles or these cyclists in this case, or the rowers. Um, and that gives them additional energy and that provides that additional, um, boost of performance in whatever that they're doing. So it has lots of uh, it has lots of applications for sure, but keep in mind when we're talking about these elite cyclists, you know these improvements can be seconds, and that's a really big deal when it comes to when it comes to these kind of you know competitions. Yeah. Um, but you know, for your everyday person, like again, I'm no doctor, I'm not giving anyone advice here, but I'm not sure if just chugging these ketones is gonna all of a sudden fix all your problems. That's not what I'm saying. So it's just you know. Well, be thank- cautious about what you do. <laughs> well, thank- well, thanks a lot. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I was assuming that all of a sudden I was going to become an elite athlete. It's like like buying new running shoes makes you run faster kind of idea. But I will tell you, I know of, I, I know of at least one audience, at least one audience member by the name of Brad that watches every show while he cycles. Like he he's he's in his yeah. he's got this great setup in his garage. He's got screens all around, and he like hammers out a hundred k while he watches the show, ever, which is just wild. So wow, I, I, he, that's a lot. One day he cycled one day. He said he was, he was riding. I believe it was to honor. I believe it was a mental health thing. I I hope I got that right, Brad, but, but he told, he said, I'm going to ride 200 K today. And he just blasted it out. Like what? This guy's remarkable. So if he wanted those ketones, I'm sure he could, uh, he could definitely pump up those numbers even more than he already is. Well, he can, he can stop messing around and he can finally pump out 300 K right. Quit, quit messing around. Right. (laughs) So, so Christina, where do you go from here? Because this is like, I mean, your big win yesterday now means that you move on to the next level. So if we want to join you on your journey and cheer for you, what, is, what did the next little bit look like? Um, well, I, I will get the feedback from the judges that uh, from yesterday's uh, competition, and then I will work on another video. And uh, then I uh, am involved in the Western uh, Regional Finals. Uh, it 
I, I don't have a date written down for it yet, <laughs> but uh, it'll it, it'll be the same sort of format, uh, uh, an online Zoom uh, competition. And so we will see how that goes. And then we'll get to say that we knew you when. We knew you when. <laughs> You know, before the entire country wants interviews, we got this one here on Real Talk. I love it. You don't have to know about the next stage. Like, this is like, you know, like after people win the Stanley Cup or whatever, and they do the interviews the next morning, you know, with the, with the <laughs> local, and they're wearing sunglasses inside. I, I mean, the fact that you even showed up after the big win yesterday is remarkable, Christine. So thank you so much. <laughs> hey, to the three of you, honestly, what incredible ambassadors the three of you are to the University of Alberta, to the, the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research. And congratulations, all three of you. People's Choice uh, winner, Shabam Sony, first runner-up, Nozima Faiziva, and, uh, and our winner, our first place, Christina Moline Cherneski. Um, have a wonderful long weekend. And enjoy some well-deserved time off. Although if I know anything about the three of you, what I've learned, you're probably going to be right back at it. Uh, just yeah. continuing to lead the charge on innovation. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. you. Just three remarkable people. Sam, I was, I was almost enjoying watching you watch that interview as much as I was enjoying talking to them. We were saying off air before the show started, because I watched 3MT yesterday too, um, that I was just like, wow, these are going to be three like absolutely diametrically different topics that we're discussing and, and they're all fascinating. You know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, the, the camaraderie and the collaboration, I think is the biggest takeaway for me from that segment is how, you know, there's, there's like, we call it a competition, but it's not really a competition. Right. So it's yeah. like, it's, it's fantastic to see. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm, and I'm, I, I was actually lucky enough to be one of the judges for this. And I'm a I'm a lousy judge because I'm I'm first of all cheering for everybody that's doing an amazing job. Like what are you can say someone's research is more important or better than someone else's. Also because Carrie, my wife, would tell you that when I'm in a restaurant, this is true, I ask the server to pick for me because I'm indecisive. I pretty much know how I feel about any hot button issue, but I can't decide on a menu item in a restaurant. I'm very indecisive. So I'm always like when they're like, What's your third place, second place, first place? I'm always like you know, one of these kind of people. So I, I find it very difficult. Steph says 3 p.m. every day. She's got a tradition, stationary bike and real talk in the AirPods. Steph, out a girl. Love it. That's music to our ears. Hey, if you're looking to have plumbing work done or mechanical work done, there's been this like knocking. You can hear it in your home, but you have no idea what's causing it. All you know is that you were on the precipice of potential catastrophic mechanical failure. Look no further than Todd's Mechanical. Todd's Mechanical is the best plumber in Edmonton, bar none. Don't take my word for it. Well, do, but bolster the assertion by checking out his online reviews. He's proud of them, and he should be. Todd's one of these guys that he was working away from home in the oil patch for a lot of years, and then he wanted to be home with his family. He wanted to be home in his own bed every night. So he's been working out of Edmonton now, doing service calls, and we're hearing from Real Talkers. I remember Kathy wrote in a while ago, said I called, she said, I called Todd's mechanical. He was there in a half hour. She said, I've never seen somebody walk into the boiler room of our workplace with such confidence. Call Todd's mechanical today or write down the number for when you need it at 780-499-7598. That's Todd's mechanical. You can find him under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find the team at Friesen Brothers. I loved it. I heard from Guy Mercero yesterday. Guy is a great friend of the show. He said, my wife and I went to check out Friesen Brothers' new 
Edmonton location because we heard it on Real Talk blew his mind. I can't wait to talk to Guy in person about it. Heck, as a matter of fact, I'd love to go grab a craft beer with Guy when we can in the Friesen Brothers restaurant. They've got it on tap. They've got wine on tap at a grocery store. Smash burgers, fresh sourdough sandwiches made to order, pizza. I mean, don't even get me started on the cinnamon buns. Friesen Brothers has 15 locations across Alberta, proudly Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. The team at Clean Air Club wants you to breathe easy, save money along the way. So why not swing by cleanairclub.ca right now and sign up for their furnace filter replacement schedule. They make it nice and easy so you don't all of a sudden go nine months and then go, oh my gosh, I don't even want to know what the air, if I could see the particles in the air, I would choose not to. I would choose not to know what's blowing through our current furnace filter. Cleanairclub.ca makes sure your family breathes easy and you pay less than you would in store. We had a great conversation yesterday with a fellow by the name of Brad West. And if you missed it, you're going to want to check it out. He's he, he's the executive director of a place called Glen Gary Child Care. They've been a nonprofit child care provider for a lot of years. And, and Brad was articulate and, and, and relatively calm, but all kinds of fired up. You could tell if you watched the interview, you could tell he was fired up as the twenty five dollar a day child care funding essentially disappeared for the majority of families that were tapping into that ultimately it was a, or I should say originally it was a pilot project under the previous Alberta government and the NDP and official opposition now we're saying that if they're elected Rachel Notley says they're going to make it a thing she says they're going to bring it back and make it a thing Iraqi Pancholi is the MLA out of Edmonton White Mud she's the official opposition critic for children's services and one of the very few real talk guests that has been booked and confirmed while we were live on air over Twitter, that happened yesterday. So welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan, that's just how we roll, right? That's I'm how cool we roll. It. Well, it was pretty cool for us to know that you were watching and that you were engaged. And and I know that Brad's uh, message is one that was, I mean, we saw emails yesterday. Um, I, I can actually, I, I'm flirting with the idea of actually taking Real Talkers into my email inbox here and actually showing it on screen so people can see that, that we're receiving literally hundreds of emails every single day. Most of them were about curriculum, but a whole bunch yesterday were about childcare. I bet that's not going to surprise you. Yeah, not at all, Ryan. So first of all, let me just express uh, my thanks to Brad for, for speaking up. He's a strong advocate, but I also want to uh, thank all of the childcare operators, the educators, the staff um, in all childcare programs across Alberta, because it has been an extraordinarily challenging year for the early learning and childcare sector. And most importantly, it's been very, very challenging for Alberta parents. Um, so the emails that you're getting are probably look a lot like the thousands of emails uh, and messages that I've received from Alberta parents, some who are part of the $25 per day program who uh, received the benefit of that fantastic uh, quality and affordable access to early learning, but many parents who said, my goodness, that would be life-changing if we could have access to that. You know, I've tabled uh, petitions signed by thousands of Albertans. I've tabled uh, hundreds of letters in the legislature from working parents across this province saying, you know, access to affordable quality early learning and childcare is transformation 
transformational, would be transformational for us. And it's really important for our economic recovery. So I'm not surprised uh, to hear that you're getting those messages because I certainly have been over the last two years. Can I ask you, first of all, let's acknowledge that that not everybody is completely submersed in, in <laughs> municipal or provincial or federal politics. And, and we do our best to stay on top of things. But we all, I mean, geez, especially folks that are, you know, have, have, have looking after kids as, as a top priority and they're trying to make things work and keep their eye on the ball, so to speak. So what's the reality right now in Alberta? My understanding is that some programs, about 13 of them, it sounds like are going to kind of keep the funding. Others have lost it. Some people are saying yeah. the minister's picking winners and losers, despite the fact that she said that that was the opposite plan. What's actually going on right now when it comes to funding yeah. for childcare? Sure. So thanks. So we have so there was approximately 122 childcare programs that were part of the pilot program for $25 per day uh, childcare. That's out of about 2,500 across the province, uh, give or take. So that's uh, we agree. It's 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 a small portion of the of the actual childcare programs in our province. It was meant to be a pilot project to test out um, access to universal childcare. So this is key, right? Because it is it was the first time in this province um, that we have actually taken steps towards universal childcare programs, which means all children, regardless of their family's income, would have access uh, to quality, affordable, early learning and childcare. So it was a pilot project. Now that was the 122 centers. That that program was funded primarily through a, a funding agreement with the federal government that ended and those 122 childcare centers will go back to charging regular fees. And that's, I think, the heart of your question, Ryan, is what is the, what is the climate like for early learning and childcare right now? So we know that childcare uh, was critical to getting parents to be able to get back to work during the pandemic. And we also know that it's been hit really hard. And when I say that, I mean, uh, we've seen a number of cuts that were implemented before the pandemic hit that took effect during the pandemic. Um, and then we saw, of course, because of COVID, there's restrictions on the number of kids that can be in childcare programs. A lot of these programs are operating, actually most are operating at about 50% capacity, which means that they're licensed, for example, to have a hundred kids in their program, they can only have 50. Uh, and that's because they're trying to keep the small cohorts. But you have to remember that childcare programs are basically funded in two ways. They're funded off of some supports that are provided to low-income parents who get subsidies. And then there's a little bit of government funding that goes to top up uh, the educators' wages. But the, for the most part, almost all of these programs operate solely off of parent fees, right? So parents are funding these. That's how they stay, keep their lights on, that they can stay open. And parent fees have gone through the roof. So I want to give you a number just to give you an idea, because I know you talked about it a little bit yesterday about the cost of childcare. And this is the average childcare cost in Calgary. And this is average, meaning I know there's parents who pay a lot more. Right now in Calgary, a parent with uh, a toddler would pay $1,250 per month on average. And that's including like day homes, right? Which often charge a little bit less. They Is this for full-time care? Full-time care yeah. for one toddler, $12.50 a month. Okay, so just to throw something out there for you, because this is this is a number that kind of blows my mind, and I keep bringing it back to help people understand how unaffordable childcare is for uh, not just low-income parents, but most parents. And that's if, if a family in Calgary has two kids in childcare, which is pretty pretty average. I had two kids in childcare for almost four years, um, you know, that that will cost them twenty five hundred dollars a month. 
if they're making $75,000 as a household income, which that is well below the average household income, but $75,000, they're not eligible for any subsidies, meaning they don't get any support to pay their childcare fees. So that means that family of two kids in Calgary is paying 53% of their net income every month on just childcare. Like that is completely out of the reach of most families, right? That is, this is not just a low income issue. Of course, we wanna make sure that low income families have supports that they need to access quality early learning and childcare, but most families can't afford it. Racky, and I'm this not is a, an, sorry, yeah. I was just gonna say, I'm not a, a banker, which may surprise some people <laughs> with, with, my, with my mastery of economics, uh, but, but I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly that no bank would approve anybody for a mortgage that would take 53% of their net income every month. Don't they, they cap it at 30 or 40%, right? That's right, so 30, in other words, 30%. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd, never, you'd never get approved for a mortgage that would cost you as much as your childcare. That, that's a huge wake-up call right there. That's the billboard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I talk about that figure all the time to drive home that this is a real issue for so many families. And let's be clear, it's 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 an issue for our economy. You know, when we talk in Alberta, what's the number one issue that we've been talking about, certainly since the pandemic, but long before that, you know, we've had some economic tough times in this province. So the number one thing that we talk about all the time is getting Albertans back to work. So when we talk about getting Albertans back to work and creating jobs, suddenly when it comes to working parents, and let's be clear, Ryan, I know you know this, we're talking about working moms, all of a sudden getting them back to work falls off the radar. And, and what is the most, I guess the, the largest barrier for working moms in particular to get back to work is access to affordable quality childcare. So this is an economic issue. We cannot just ignore the thousands of working moms and say, we can just take them out of the workforce um, and we'll be okay. Our economy depends on, on these working parents getting back to work. We want them to, not only because they have the right to be able to fulfill their own career aspirations and they have a right to, to go out and, and work and, and have full economic participation as anybody else should be, but we actually want them to. It grows our tax base, it increases our GDP, it creates jobs, and let's be clear, it's also a clear investment in children, early learning, these critical years of, of learning, zero to five. I've said it before on your show, I'll say it again. Kids, we don't suddenly only care about the way kids learn and how they learn when they enter the door of, of a school. They Those critical early learning years um, are so important for a child's development. We all, as a society, have an interest in making sure that kids have access to quality early learning. We all have an interest in making sure that women can get back into the workforce. That is good for our economy, it's good for our families, and it's good for our kids. So it should be a top priority. This is, I, I'm gonna offer a caveat to this next question because I know that uh, you know people are gonna say, oh, you're, you know, you're gonna be critical of the government and then tee it up for the opposition member to just hit it out of the park. And I don't wanna throw you some softball that allows you to just take big swipes at the provincial government but I, but you are in opposition. You're the opposition critic for children's services, and the question is relevant. So I have to ask it. It's been obvious to Albertans that there is, at least in one direction, an adversarial relationship between the provincial and the federal government. Um, that's obvious for anybody that's listened to Jason Kenny talk for more than three minutes at any given time. Can't stand Justin Trudeau. Described him once as having the, the political depth of a finger bowl. By the way, if you haven't read Graham Thompson's piece in iPolitics just out last night, <clears throat> unbelievable reference to the finger bowl by one of the greatest political writers in Alberta. I digress. 
The point is, this provincial government has left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. I don't know it's because I don't know if it's because they don't want to give credit to the federal government. I don't know if it's because they think they can do better. I don't know if it's because they had to spend a little to get a lot. Um, only Jason Kenney and only the UCP cabinet knows that. But job training funds have been either threatened to expire or have expired. Early support for workers, like $300 million worth, was left on the table. Alberta, one of the only provinces, if not the only province, I'm going by memory, to have left that money on the table. Now, Heidi chimes in and she says, it's maybe a small thing, but do you notice how Racky recognizes the funding from the federal government? She says, good luck getting that recognition out of the UCP. Here's my question. How important in the context of subsidized or supported child care is a healthy relationship and collaboration between the provincial and federal governments? So here's what I'll say to that. One, one thing I'll say is let's be clear that early learning and child care is actually provincial responsibility. So I'm not going to let the province and this provincial government off the hook for that. It is absolutely the responsibility of the provincial government. That being said, um, it has also been clear that the federal government plays a key role in establishing supports for both for provinces to implement uh, strong uh, early learning and child care policies. Uh, the NDP relied on federal funding to, to start that uh, pilot program for uh, the $25 per day childcare program. That was critical. Uh, and what we've seen over the last year is that actually the federal government has been the one that has kept Alberta's childcare sector afloat. Uh, you know, there, uh, we know that this government constantly resists um, negotiating and working with the federal government. They were actually quite happy to take 85% um, of the funding that came to support the child care sector and parents during the past year during the pandemic came from the federal government. They're very happy to take those dollars for, for child care. Uh, they don't give credit for it. Um, if you ask the Minister of Children's Services, she will constantly refer to the well over $100 million that was provided in support to the child care sector through cooperation between the province and the federal government. Well, 85% of that came from the federal government. Now we know that we've got a federal government that has said at least that in principle that they're going to be looking at a national child care strategy. That's going to be important because we see in Alberta that our provincial government is abdicating their responsibility for it. So part of me is thinking, you know what, at least for the sake of Alberta families, for the sake of Alberta children and women and workforce participation, if one level of government is willing to step up and do it, you know, I think Albertans should say, thank you, we need it, because we do, our economy needs it. That being said, it's gonna be a long time before uh, the federal government will really come up with a national childcare strategy that will make a really on the ground difference for Alberta families. And we cannot wait for that. Um, you know, I, I know that the federal government has intentions, they're gonna be announcing a, a, a federal budget coming out soon. There's gonna be announcements, but let's be clear, it's, it's a long time away. And this is something that women in this country have been asking for and have been demanding for decades. It's been 50 years since the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, where in 1967, it, they came out and said, we need to put a fee on daycare costs. The public purse needs to support that because it's a public good for women to be able to get back into the workforce. 50 years and we're still no further. And I think what I think about the end of the $25 per day program, that is what breaks my heart, right? Because uh, of course, yes, I'm a member of the NDP. I ran for the NDP because I saw them implement a pilot program for $25 per day program. It is life-changing. It is transformational. And that's the story that I've been hearing from so many parents who have lost now the support. 
I mean, I had an emotional press conference last week, Ryan, with a number of parents where when the camera stopped rolling, I was expressing my thanks to them and we were crying because this is affecting their lives. They're, they're making choices now for their children that they never wanted to have to make. They're talking about leaving their workforce. They're talking about not having a second child. They're talking about um, the fact that they're, they're, the, their child is gonna be taken away from an early learning childcare program where they were loved and supported by quality educators and they had friends. It's breaking their hearts, but it's also hurting our economy. So we campaigned in 2019 about expanding this $25 per day program across the province to all licensed childcare programs. And that's what we're saying now. We, we rolled out a proposal in the fall of 2020, maintaining that commitment to rolling out that $25 per day program. Rachel Notley has said on the record, I'm very proud that, you know, day one, if we are elected again in 2023 to be government, we will be rolling this program out across the province because our economy needs it, our families need it, and our children need it. It is, we cannot wait for the federal government to step up and do this. I hope they have great intentions, but I also don't trust that this current provincial government is actually going to negotiate in good faith with the federal government. There's going to be games that are played. We know that. They want to just take the dollars and put it into parents' pockets, which, look, that is a strategy that conservatives have used forever around childcare. They say just put more money in, the, in parents' pockets. That doesn't work. Okay, but let's talk, let's talk about that, yeah. though, because there, yeah. there are differences in opinion. Like, yeah. you know, depending on who you talk to, either like, let me sort of in my mind, here's as a civilian, here's my understanding of how the scale works um, over here. People would argue that we should pay. There should be a universal basic income. We should cover the cost of all child care or child care centers should be properly funded. Then we'll get into the gray area. And I respect these points of view. Some people will say we should put money in parents pockets. The conservatives will will. And it can be powerful messaging. They'll say. We as politicians, the rich part about it, but I get the message. They'll say, as politicians, we believe that parents know how to better spend their money than politicians, which kind of is like a weird inherent. It's like the old Hyundai marketing where, where the slogan was, yes, Hyundai, which acknowledged that everyone thought that their cars were shitty. I thought that was like the weirdest ad of all. Yes, Hyundai. Uh, but that's like politicians talking about how greasy politicians can be. It's kind of this weird circle. Anyway. But they want parents to spend the money. They believe parents can spend it best. And I actually think you can make a compelling argument for it. And I'm actually inclined to believe to, to see things. I can I can sympathize with that point of view. Then there's the perspective that there should be twenty five dollar a day care for families who qualify. Then there's the perspective there should be twenty five dollar a day care for for families, for all families. Right. And then there's the idea that it's not the state's job to raise your kids. And if you can't afford to have kids, then don't have kids. And my wife stayed home or I stayed home so we could have I mean, speaking from a male perspective, you've heard it all. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not one agreed upon route to take. Yeah. And so I could probably, I mean, I could stay on your show for an hour, Ryan, and we talk got lots about of all time. Those, but <laughs> we got lots of time. But but let me say, so first of all, let me get to that idea of parents uh, just need to have the financial support, put more money in the in parents' pockets and, and let them make their choice. So first of all, that's premised on a couple things that aren't true. So it's premised on the idea, first of all, that, uh, that there is... Uh, 
a market for childcare, that there is as many childcare spaces, licensed programs, quality programs uh, out there as are needed. First of all, we have, uh, childcare is a public good that is primarily privately delivered. And the problem with that um, is that we know that parents need it, but it's not always there. We do not have the supply of childcare that we need to actually meet the needs of all parents. So we have, you know, and there's a l- various different figures, but you could certainly say that there's roughly about um, licensed childcare spaces for about one to six or one to seven of the actual children in Alberta. So we don't have enough spaces. So the idea that parents can just take their dollars and 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 go go use it wherever they want, um, there's just not enough spaces to begin with, particularly in rural areas, particularly where what we call childcare deserts. So the market doesn't actually supply the amount of childcare we need. Second of all, um, the implication that parents just have an extra few dollars in their pockets and they'll go out and they, they can choose and they have choice. Um, choice implies again, that there's uh, accessible, affordable and sufficient quali- quantity and quality of spaces for childcare. There are not. Parents right now, and 50% of Alberta parents say that the number one barrier for them accessing childcare, and 50% of them say why they've had troubles finding childcare is because they cannot afford it. So simply putting a few dollars, extra dollars in a parent's pocket does not magically make childcare available or affordable. And also, by the way, it's very linked to the fact that as parents get more dollars in their pockets through things like tax credits um, or even subsidies, childcare fees go up. Um, and, And... we have a perfect, unfortunate example of that in Alberta just over this past year. Last year, uh, the provincial government announced that they were going to increase the amount that low-income parents uh, got for subsidy, which is a great thing. I'm not going to argue with that. That it's a good thing to provide more dollars to low-income parents. Um, but the increase was roughly about $140 per, for a low-income parent, making less than $50,000 per year. Childcare fees in Edmonton and Alberta have gone up by more than $140. I told you the example of, of uh, Calgary. Child, the average childcare fee last year went up $175. So that increase in subsidy has already been eaten up by the increase in fees. It's already gone. The, the difference of that parent, that low-income parent still has to pay more. So we cannot talk about parent choice and act like there is an ample supply of affordable, accessible, and quality childcare out there. There just simply isn't. And I want to be clear that childcare fees don't go up because of, you know, greedy childcare uh, providers. You know, there are ratios that are required in terms of the number of educators to children. Um, It is impossible for many uh, small private operators to be able to uh, operate uh, with a profit, a childcare program that um, given the wages that they have to pay, and they're based primarily on on what parents are able to afford. Um, So childcare fees are going up, but that's because the cost of childcare fees are going up and throw in COVID and it's like a total disaster, right? So so, I mean, like they just, I mean, these, these programs are hanging on by, a, you know, by a thread. And so, you know, that idea, I get it. That's parent choice. I love that idea. If, if it really was a choice, you know, if parents who want to choose to stay home with their kids, that is a great choice. That is a parents should be supported in doing that. And tax credits play a role in the system. Absolutely. But the reality is parents don't truly have choice and it's a cop-out. And by the way, I just want to throw this out there because this was like a head slapping moment for me when I, you know, uh, when we saw this current provincial government, the UCP, 
basically announced $108 million in what they call the working parent benefit, right? So they, they had accumulated dollars over this past year um, from their budget because the childcare sector wasn't operating at full capacity. So they had $108 million left over. I'd been calling on that on the government repeatedly to invest that into the childcare system, meaning to keep programs afloat, to lower childcare fees for parents. Instead, what they did is they took a quarter of their budget for childcare and handed it out in a one-time payment to parents making less than $100,000 per year. And don't get me started about how many parents were excluded from that. A one-time payment of $561. And that really just meant that that covered about the equivalent of two weeks worth of childcare for parents, and it's gone. It's going to go in their pockets. I'm sure parents appreciated that $561, but it's gone now. And next, the next month, childcare is going to be just as expensive, if not more expensive. To me, this argument that putting more dollars into parent fees um, or parents' pockets is somehow supporting parents is, is not true. And it actually shows me how bad this government is at the economy. At, that was a, that was incredibly poor investment of, of, of child care dollars. $108 million could have extended that the $25 per day program for another two and a half years. It could have, it, it could have uh, expanded the number of centers and programs offering $25 per day for another year or two. Like that would have made a difference to 7,500 children or more. Instead, there's a one-time payment that's gone. So, you know, the, these are these are bad investments and it's simply just not helping parents in the long run or getting people back uh, back to work in the long run. Uh, we're talking to Raki Bancholi. She's the official opposition critic for Children's Services, the NDP MLA out of Edmonton, White Mud. Hang tight for one second. Uh, we're going to pay a couple of our bills. I wanted to let you know right <laughs> now. See how we just roll into that, Raki? We'd make it as smooth <laughs> very, as we possibly very can. Smooth. Just like the smooth ride of the 2021 Jeep Cherokee Sport 4x4. You typically see it listed at about $44.75, but right now at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, it's on sale for $34,990. That's right. More than five grand off. These are the ones with the 3.2 liter V6 with a nine-speed automatic transmission, heated leather-wrapped steering wheel. Watch the leather. Heated front seats, remote starter, a touchscreen with integrated Bluetooth and Apple CarPlay. You'll find Alberta's best Jeep and Dodge Ram lineup at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also, a big shout out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Megan yesterday chimed in. She said, we're up in the Fort Mac area. We grabbed Dairy Queen. She said, I apologize. It's not from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park, but still, maybe you could give DQ a shout out. We said, it's the spirit of your message, Megan. The spirit that resonates. If your long weekend is going to include maybe a a medium dipped cone or a Sunday, you know you can get two of them every day after 8 p.m., two of them for five bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Make sure you tell the team that you're a real talker. They love to hear from you. So does the team at Westworld Computers. Awesome to hear from Anand. He's a good friend of the show. He went and saw Daryl and the team in Westworld Computers. We always love giving Westworld a heads up when you're going to swing by so we can make sure you get the best possible customer service. They've got a great lineup of all the new sexy Apple stuff, but then of course they've got the gently pre-owned stuff too with all the software reloaded, the warranty reapplied. You can buy with confidence like people have been doing for more 
more than 40 years at Westworld Computers. They're powering the Real Talk studio. Hanging out with Rocky Pancholi. She's the NDP MLA out of Edmonton, White Mud. I, I'm not sure I've ever actually heard you say that before, uh, that that the $25 a day pilot was the reason uh, you decided to to run for the party uh, and ultimately knock on probably hundreds or thousands of doors and win and, and essentially put your career in this direction. With regards to the promise that your party's leader, former Premier Rachel Notley, has made official opposition leader now, obviously, if she's back in that premier's office, she says this will be a thing. What have we learned from that that gives you the confidence that that's the best way to go? And and more specifically, what do we know about what it means? I'm going to say the cost. I know you're right away going to spin it and say, no, the investment, Ryan, you're going to say the investment because that's a big part of the argument, right? Absolutely, uh, because we've talked about this for sure. So we know that uh, investing in early learning and childcare is probably the smartest economic policy we can make. I'm not, you know, I've never hidden from the fact, and neither has Rachel as leader, that it costs, there, there's the cost to this, of course, it does cost a lot of money. First of all, governing is about choices, right? And you want to invest our public dollars in good investments. And early learning and childcare has at least a return on investment of $4 for every $1 invested. It could be at much higher that over the long term. It is a smart investment. It increases our GDP. It increases our workforce participation. It increases our investment in children in the short term and long term. Uh, but, it, you know, what we've learned, and this was the whole purpose of doing this as a pilot project. I mean, we hear the conversation and the talking points coming from the UCP and the minister about, oh, this was about picking winners and losers. Well, it was about a pilot project for a transformational system for child care and early learning in this province. We had to do it in a phased in way. Any province that has done it, Quebec, BC's done it the same way. They phase it in. You have to work it out. You can't just overhaul the system. That would be, um, I think, reckless. We did it in a very uh, thoughtful way and saw great results. The evaluation from the pilot project was um, absolutely was making a huge difference in parents' lives. It was increasing the quality of care by educators getting top-ups and professional development. Um, it was making a significant difference. So yeah, the plan is that we would be rolling this out uh, across the province. Again, it has to be done in a thoughtful way. And one of the things that we've been very clear about is that we would have to do it in, in absolute consultation and work with the childcare sector. All programs, you know, we're talking about day homes, private operators, nonprofit, um, out of school care programs, preschools. Um, we need to do it in a thoughtful way, but but it is critical. It is a platform. It's something that uh, we did campaign on in 2019, which yes, it, it, it is a reason that I ran because that is taking the economy seriously and it's taking women seriously and it's taking children seriously. And that's what inspired me. So it has to be done in a thoughtful way. I don't want to be glib about, about the significance of, of the rollout of it and the work it would require, but it would be huge. we now have, Oh, it absolutely. It'd be huge. Right. Um, I mean, people look at, it, people look at Quebec and they'll say like, this is a model or, or this is, you know, a model for study. I'm not going to ask you to endorse the Quebec model. Quite frankly, I don't know too much about the Quebec model, except for half of Alberta thinks that they're paying for it out of their paychecks. That's about all I know. But but are we talking are we talking like and I know that that, you know, you, the finance critic, you know, and, and you know, maybe maybe even Rachel Notley herself will go, Rocky, don't say exact numbers. Please don't say exact numbers. And you're not going to give me exact numbers. But are we talking like seven or maybe you can. Are we talking seven hundred million? Are we talking two and a half billion? What are we talking? We've costed it out at $900 million a okay, year. There you go. And, and yeah, it's, yeah, we have it. It's in our, we rolled out an early learning and childcare proposal in October, 2020. It's on our website, albertasfuture.ca. We've got all these economic policy proposals there. That is one of them. We've costed it out. Um, and let's be clear though, the direction that we're hearing from the federal government uh, is that this is the direction they're going in as well. 
they're, when they're talking about a national childcare strategy, they're talking about making sure that all children across the country um, have access to quality, affordable early learning. This is the direction the federal government is going in as well. And so there will be supports uh, from the federal government to do this. So when I talk about, yes, early learning and childcare is a provincial responsibility, but going forward in that direction for a $25 per day program is very consistent and is quite in line with the direction that, that the current federal government is going. So I believe there would be uh, a long-term, there will be a long-term commitment and support from the federal government to do this as well. We're not all on our own doing this. Um, but yes, and, and I just want to speak really quickly to the Quebec model because the economic benefits of the Quebec model are undisputed, right, in terms of workforce participation, GDP growth. There were challenges, though. I'm not, you know, there were there were things about the Quebec model that I think we learned from those experiences when we rolled out the $25 per day program. One of the things that the Quebec model didn't do was focus on quality early learning. It focused just on the affordability piece. Hmm. And we saw some long-term implications for that. That's why when we rolled out the, at the NDP rolled out the pilot project for $25 per day, it included supports for, like I talked about, professional development, wage top-ups for educators. The number one indicator of quality early learning is the qualification of those educators. It included the, uh, the implementation of, of an early childhood education curriculum called FLIGHT. Um, so we took that very seriously and said, this is not just about putting a cap on fees. It has to be quality early learning because that's what makes the difference as well. So we've already have learned some lessons from what other jurisdictions have done. And so, yeah, I like this is a this is a massive program. And I don't mean in cost. I mean, in terms of impact on our economy and our families and on, and on children, like it, it's it's an ambitious plan, but it is transformational. I mean, if you look at all the things uh, that you can spend money on, 900 million is not a joke. Uh, but at the same time, you know, provincial governments have been known to commit more than a billion dollars to show support for a pipeline that's headed off a cliff. So, yeah. I mean, if you want to send a message to the rest of Canada and if you want to be serious about jobs in the economy, um, I would suggest that, it, you know, it would probably resonate across the country if Alberta were to initiate something like this. It would be national news. It would speak to people that are in other jurisdictions that may consider. I mean, I think that this could be somewhat of a welcome to Alberta type initiative. Absolutely, Ryan. And thank you for saying that, because, you know, when we're talking about trying to make Alberta positioning Alberta for the new economy, whatever that's going to look yeah. like, and we have such great potential, you know, so many, you know, I've listened in on so many conversations about post-secondary and about tech and about AI. And those conversations are all about how do we attract people and how do we attract companies to want to grow in Alberta? Well, guess what? Livability and quality of life are huge. Right. So absolutely, it would be uh, something that we could we could put out proudly and say, come to Alberta because families will want to live here. Employers will want to set up here because they know that their employees will have access to quality early learning, which is I love the comment yesterday when I was listening to your interview with Brad. Yeah, employers care about this deeply. Like and that's why I've been really heartened by conversations that I've been having uh, over the last you know year, especially like I've been reaching out and having great conversations with like the Chambers of Commerce, Edmonton, Calgary, the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. You've seen the statements from, you know, Bank of Canada, RBC, Scotiabank, like this is not just, uh, you know, a social policy. This is economic policy. Employers are interested in, businesses are interested in. Um, we should be seeing it as a way to attract uh, attract people and companies to Alberta. It would make a huge difference. And uh, we are going to, I think one of the things that really 
heart hurts my heart, I'll be quite honest, is that Alberta has been far behind for so long on early learning and, and childcare. We really have been. The $25 per day was the first real progress um, that we've made in a long time. And to see that end really means to be going backwards in time, which by the way, seems to be the you know MO of this government. They certainly with everything from the curriculum to, uh, to this, to so many other things, they seem to be living in a different era. Well, we wanna position ourselves and we should be positioning ourselves and our economy as forward thinking. And this is part of that. It's why we've rolled it out as part of our economic policy uh, because it is about attracting Albertans and supporting our economy and getting more Albertans back to work. Thank you for hanging out with us today. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you. By the way, can I just add, so yeah. cool that you had Sachi Cool on this morning. Right. I'm a huge fan of Sachi. Um, you know, her uh, her book, One Day We'll All Die, None of This Will Matter. That book, as a brown girl who grew up in Alberta, spoke to me on so many levels. Uh, she's so cool. And I just want to put in my plug. I agree, Arrested Development is an awesome TV show. But I also have to add my personal favorite, Parks and Rec, because it is a show about public service and optimism, and it's funny as hell. So I just have to throw in my plug for that is one of my favorite tv shows i also feel like parks and rec uh i have i have no idea even how tv production works anymore and budgets for entertainment and network televisions i don't want to say dying on the vine but kind of in a way and uh, but but i i feel like parks and rec was one of those shows where it was kind of like taxi back in the day where you'd never really be able to afford to put that cast together now you know what i mean because totally. everyone's everyone's careers just went wild after Parks yeah. and Rec. It was one of those kind of launch platforms. It was kind of like what The Daily Show was for Samantha Ugh. Bee and Stephen Colbert and everybody else. I'm forgetting people, of course. Steve Carell. I mean, yeah. Steve Carell. Yeah. Like, <laughs> jeez, unbelievable. Yeah. So John hang Oliver. on, though. Are you? Are, what's that? John Oliver. John, John Oliver. John well. Oliver. Yeah. Once you actually start thinking about it, it's like the Daily oh Show has made like most of the modern comedy circuit. That, yeah. That and SNL. Yeah, that's a great point, Sam. Yeah. Um, okay, Rocky. Anything else? you want to go on the any hot takes anything else you'd like to respond to or go to go on the record on i think we've got we've got parks and rec um an endorsement of sachi cool which i'm glad you said the name of her book as you said it i realized oh my gosh i never mentioned her book but there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about with her you know Oh, she's cool as hell. That's all I got to say. Um, yeah. And I loved having on. I just I, I just want to say thank you, Ryan, for continuing this conversation about childcare. The end of the $25 per day program, um, you know, I thought I'd feel like really devastated, which I, I kind of was a little bit only because I've been working so much with the parents and programs who really care so much. But I actually feel a lot of hope. You know, this conversation around early learning and childcare, more and more people are having it. It's, car- it's crossing partisan lines. It's crossing organizations. People are taking it seriously. So I I actually have a lot of hope and I just want to thank you for continuing that conversation because uh, I think it means a lot to a lot of people. Well, we're, we're citizens. Um, we're community members. Uh, we know who joins us, who subscribes to the podcast, who watches and listens, what they expect from this show, um, what they're taking from this show. And it's, it's part of it. I mean, I mean, quite frankly, people feel underrepresented and disrespected right now. So um, Racky, thanks for hanging out and thanks for your work on it. We appreciate it. Thanks Ryan. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Have a wonderful long weekend. <laughs> Um, this is uh, we did we did hear from some people that were curious. What was that? What was that Graham Thompson? What was the Graham Thompson uh, op-ed or what was the piece that you mentioned here? You'll find it here. iPolitics.ca. Uh, Graham published it on March 31st with his inability to navigate. Kenny has run his ship aground. Uh, Graham is a widely respected uh, and longtime columnist on the politics uh, in Alberta. He writes that the problem for Alberta's premier is that he's been such a th- thunderously partisan opponent 
to a consumer carbon price, he's painted himself into a very tight corner with no easy way out. Graham doesn't actually even touch on the curriculum debacle in the piece, but the uh, the the passage that I referenced uh, is here in the 2019 provincial election. This was in the context of Jason Kenney's comment that Justin Trudeau has the political depth of a finger bowl. Do you remember that quote? I mean, first of all, it's a great zinger. It's a great zinger. And some people will say that that actually maybe he that's not inaccurate <laughs> some people he's just because you, you you know you you it's it's okay to say you know people say to me like oh why don't you go did you see the tweet about me yesterday from, from what was it canadian dad or something like this oh yes. did you see this tweet oh, that i said I, it, no, it was actually hilarious though yeah. i thought it was i thought it was funny <laughs> but i got i got this i got this from the account dad's edmonton um yesterday that said and i don't even remember what i was commenting on but i think it was something obvious it was it was a rather benign observation on my part and this guy responds by saying jesperson iverson nenshi and notley can all fuck off to ottawa and hang out with their racist corrupt thief liar and groper of a prime minister whom they all love real albertans will stay and support our elected majority says the good foot soldier dad's edmonton a few notes. Number one, as everybody noted as I tweeted it, Dad's Edmonton actually used whom correctly, which was remarkable. So congratulations there. The other thing that I was especially excited about is of all the high-profile Albertans, Iveson, Nenshi, and Notley all followed me. I was named first, and he spelled my name correctly. So Dad's Edmonton, thank you very much. But let me remind you that that criticizing one politician, or as we might say in this line of work, holding them to account, does not equal endorsing their political opponent. In other words, I can find fault, I can find reasons to be critical, and in some cases, very critical of the federal government. And I can do the same with the provincial government. It's not like a weird team sport where it's the Battle of Alberta or it's Leafs versus Habs or it's Yankees Red Sox or it's the what, what's another what's it like a literary uh, the McCoys and the Hatfields is that it? am I getting it right? Sure. Or I'll throw in like the Sharks and the Jets or something like that. Why yeah, but not? I want to yeah. I want to take it out of hockey so people can oh, okay. uh, like uh, what well, was like, Star Jets Trek was, versus um, Star Wars? Yeah, sure. We'll go there. Oh, what was Sharks and Jets? Did I miss your reference? Was West Side Story. Oh, sorry, buddy. I thought you were talking about NHL. <laughs> See, I- <laughs> That's not really a rivalry. <laughs> it's not a rivalry at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, the technical producer is too smart for the host. This is what happens. Back to the quote. Justin Trudeau has the political depth of a finger bowl several years ago, writes Graham Thompson two days ago in the 2019 provincial election. Kenny was afloat in a sea of one million votes. However, a mid-March Leger poll showed the NDP had 40 percent support in the province with Kenny's United Conservatives at 20 percent. The next election is still two years away. A lot can change between now and then, but it would seem Kenny's ocean of support can be measured these days in finger bowls, not fathoms. And it's very rare that I react out loud to a column, but I went, oh, like I was like, boy, G. Thompson. Way to Graham, go, Graham Thompson's been a little unleashed lately. Yes. And it's awesome. It's amazing watching people that have dropped the shackles of corporate media. And are still rolling with insurance. That's a double whammy. That's that. Those are the guys you got to really look out for. Um, we're going to get to trash talk in just a little bit, but we had a ton of other emails that I wanted to get to, and these are not necessarily uh, trash talk. I mean, they could be. I mean, let's do it. Let's show my inbox. 
Okay? I hope that nothing happens here. I hope we don't get anybody in trouble. Let me take, before you take my screen, let me take one last quick look just to make yeah, sure. Yeah. Just, just, just to make, make sure, sure that like your social just to make insurance sure number isn't in my the social insurance number somewhere. isn't showing yeah. or, or people aren't like, you know, this isn't like a leak from the ledge from a staffer. But okay, so let's take my screen. So here, this, this is it. I just want to give you an idea so you guys know that, I mean, we're not bullshitting. When, when we tell you this stuff, like I want you to look at the subject lines and I want you to look at the times the emails are coming in. Okay, so like look at all the subject lines. New curriculum, proposed elementary curriculum, curriculum concerns, deep curriculum concerns, K to six curriculum, draft curriculum, draft curriculum, curriculum, feedback on proposed draft. You get the idea. 1024, 1018, 940, 924, 918, 909, 853, 849, 841, 819, 804, 801, 801, 801, 8 a.m., 752, 722, 720. You get the idea. Okay? This is here, here's page one. Okay, that, that this is still okay. This is okay. April 1st, you see all this? Page two, curriculum rewrite, curriculum, New Alberta curriculum, curriculum, concerned parent, letter to the prime minister, a critical point, new draft curriculum, defend Alberta parks, curriculum, it must be completely scrapped, April 1st, April 1st, this is just yesterday, okay, so that's that's 100 right there, let's go here, let's show you another 50, this is just in case, like, we'll pull back the curtain, this is my inbox, okay, April 1st, April 1st, look at all this. Here, here's 50 more. Curriculum, feedback, draft curriculum. Please do not implement curriculum. Feedback, Virginia's, I mean Alberta's curriculum. Curriculum draft letter, rejection of proposed. We're still on April 1st. That's yesterday. There's 150 of them. Curriculum concerns, appalling new curriculum, grave concerns with proposed curriculum. April 1st, April 1st, April 1st. Okay, we're into March. So now we're into two days. Okay, so 200 yesterday. We could keep going March 31st. We don't have, I think we've, so it's not like we've received seven emails. It's not like we've received seven, about 200 yesterday and March 31st, there were more than that. So I'm going to call it approximately 500 over the last two days. Those are just the ones that, that this show is CC'd on. So you can imagine how many of the government's seeing. I mean, Racky kind of touched on that, too. She's like, I, I have thousands and thousands on this file. You know what I mean? And, and like, and we get CC to emails to her as well. So, yeah. like, we've seen a little shred of what she sees on this. Yeah, it's worth pointing out, too, that, that you should CC. I mean, CC, like, investigative reporters, CC the official opposition. Even like, CC the official opposition conservatives. CC the federal NDP on letters that you're writing to the federal government. Always give... Like there are different ways to infuse accountability. You know, it's easy for a government like Premier Kenny did the other day to look into a camera, to look right into your eyes, so to speak, and say, we got seven emails about Aloha Gate. Not true. And we know that because we have several hundred of them that you CC'd us on. And I could not say that definitively if I did not have all the emails right here in my inbox. So you hold the power, people. Don't you ever forget that. To talk at RyanJesperson.com, Naomi writes, I'm a parent of three elementary-aged kids in Edmonton. I, along with everybody I know, am appalled beyond words by Alberta's new draft curriculum. It clearly was not written by people with appropriate expertise. It is so slapdash that it includes a great deal of plagiarism. There are passages that are downright nonsensical or wrong. And someone is sneaking in dramatic changes and edits every day, live. It doesn't even appear to have been written with children in mind, let alone Alberta. This curriculum would undermine the public education system that keeps our province wealthy, healthy, and peaceful. Naomi says it's horrifying to be vicariously embarrassing. 
That would be a great band name, Vicariously Embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for my province that it has published such a mess. We must go back to the original progressive conservative plan or to the NDP plan. Please get a real curriculum committee, rehire teachers, real pedagogical experts, and real subject matter experts. Start over. Sincerely, Naomi. What about this from Colleen? Says, I'm a parent of two elementary-aged kids. I'm writing to express concerns about the new K-6 curriculum. I have many, but because I don't have hours to spare to articulate all of them, I'll stick to my primary concerns. First, much has been made about the lack of developmental appropriateness in the new curriculum, particularly, particularly with reference to grade two social studies. My son will start grade two in September, writes Colleen. Uh, by the way, she lives in the riding of Banff Kananaskis. Lucky gal. Says, uh, my son starting grade two in September just learned to read simple sentences. Having missed much of kindergarten because of COVID, he's behind on the basics, as are many others like him. Yet he'll be expected to understand ancient Roman traditions, origins of early democracy, medieval social order, the origin of the Silk Road, routes of European exploration, Genghis Khan, managing money and planning a meal. That's just a tiny portion of the grade two social studies curriculum because the sheer volume is staggering. And what's the connection? It seems like a random list of European history. How are teachers supposed to even attempt to teach this in any sort of meaningful way? Especially when there's also math, science, language arts, and more to be learned. It says, I guarantee there are adults that would struggle with learning all this, let alone seven-year-olds. Another concern is the inclusion of world religions, signs Colleen. Why are public school teachers expected to teach religious doctrine? And why are all religions except for Christianity positioned as brought by newcomers? Hinduism, Judaism. By the way, happy Passover to those that are celebrating. Buddhism, for example, all are older religions than Christianity. Followers have been members of Alberta's communities for decades, if not longer. What makes them the beliefs of newcomers? The inherent bias and, and racism is, is reprehensible and has no place in a classroom. And she says, why are the Ku Klux Klan included, given that no time is dedicated to any anti-racist groups? This is beyond problematic. I do think it's worth noting, by the way, that uh, Colleen is a woman of color. I, 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 I sometimes have to kind of cut out portions of these emails, but it, it's relevant to her point. She says, finally, I'm at a loss as, as to why a new curriculum was needed at all. She says, our existing curriculum involved a great deal of work by renowned educational experts and educators. It's been referenced as a model uh, from jurisdictions around the world. The new draft seems to me as coming across as an exercise in changing something because your government wants to undo the, everything the NDP did. It's a gross misuse of taxpayer dollars, especially when such drastic cuts to education have already been made in the midst of a pandemic. I implore this government, says Colleen out of Banff, Kananaskis to seriously consider the negative long-term effects of moving ahead with this new curriculum. Our kids will not be equipped with the critical life skills they need to succeed. <laughs> Sarah said, as a parent with a child starting kindergarten this year, the draft curriculum terrifies me. The requisites indicate that writers have, have not only never been in a real classroom with kids of this age, but also suggest they've never met a child within this age range. Sarah says, I'm beyond thrilled to hear that Elk Island Public Schools has taken a stand and will refuse to pilot this trash. This should be a major indicator to you that the people in your constituencies are concerned and that you should be too. MLAs take note. That from 
Sarah. These are, as you saw, 200 emails yesterday, about 300 the day. But so, so I picked about three. We could sit here and we could read you hundreds of emails. Keep them coming. We want to hear from you. It means a lot to hear from you. Another way that you can be in touch with the show is to answer our question of the week, which is presented by Y Station at RyanJesperson.com. This week, we're getting some really interesting feedback on how you feel about the vaccine rollout. Next week's question of the week. I don't think the team at Y Station will mind me giving you a little teaser, a little spoiler. You'll never guess what we're going to ask you about. We're going to ask you about the curriculum rewrite. We had about 4,600 respondents, I think, to our Aloha Gate question of the week. I want to see if we can get over 5,000 this time. I think we can do it, ryanjesperson.com. That question will be posted officially for you Wednesday morning when Sam and I are back live Wednesday morning. We're taking Monday, Tuesday mornings to be with our families, to go off the grid. Well, you can do whatever you want, Sam. I'm going off the grid. I can't wait. Sounds like, I don't want to go off the grid. Do I have to go off the grid? You don't have to go off the grid. No, I mean, going off the grid sounds appealing to me. But I, I just, I, I think I'm probably going to be finishing renovations. But uh, yeah, you do that, you, that man. Could in, that could include off the grid. Yeah. Get a little drywall dust in the hair. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, so Wednesday morning, we'll post our, our, our fresh question of the week. And of course, our Patreon subscribers, thank you to you beauties, will receive the official and exclusive top line report. So you can go through pages and pages of, of curated and processed data, scientific data on how real talkers feel about issues that matter. Very, very cool stuff. We're proud to partner each and every week with the team at McBain Camera. If you have a unique photo, why not put it in a unique frame? McBain Camera can place your favorite prints in a beautiful custom frame that will add an extra flair of personalization to your home, your office, or maybe even, I don't know, a recording studio. Head down to the McBain store. There's six of them here in the province of Alberta. The one closest to you to choose from a variety of frame options that'll best suit your image. They also offer many other high quality print items and options, including gallery wraps, which is kind of my personal favorite. I love the wrap. Metal prints, which are super cool, plaque mounting, and more. You can shop safely at any of their six convenient Alberta locations. Or, of course, you can live chat, which is a really great feature, with a team member right now at McBainCamera.com. Also wanted to encourage you to check out LandscapeEdmonton.ca today. That's where you'll find the more than 20 years of experience of the team at Eden Landscaping on display. You can check out some of the projects they've done, connect with their team, and understand how they can work with you to not only design, but build your dream outdoor project whether that's a retaining wall a fitted stone patio an outdoor cooking area maybe a swim spa whatever you can dream up they can make it happen at eden landscaping i've got this weird thing happening right now which would be a real nightmare uh if one was about to be heading into something like oh i don't know trash talk where i have this little tickle in my throat and and it's messing with me so i'm just for a second going to mute myself and get ready to put these pipes through a workout. Because every single week, the team at Local Waste reminds us, they remind us that for more than a quarter century, they've been providing waste management services, garbage and recycling to businesses of all sizes. And they love to fight for your business. They love to talk trash. They want to compete because they know that your budget might be tight and they can work with it. Forget about these big multinational faceless garbage corporations. Give Chris, Lauren, or Mikkel a call today. Ask for them by name at 780-242-9746. They would love to talk trash with you. You can check out localwaste.ca as well. 
You know, each and every Friday, our friends at Local Waste present a little something we call Trash Talk! Earmuffs on, kids. This one from Fred, who wrote into talk at ryanjesperson.com. He says, things are pretty heated right now in Alberta, so I figured I'd send you a trash talk in case you wanted to get people all worked up about something less serious. Music to our ears, Fred. He says, I hope all the Flames fans are ready for the Oilers to put up seven next game. He says, I couldn't imagine not being able to beat the Senators. It's sad, really. He says, I feel bad for all of you. Sincerely, an Oilers fan. Man, that from Fred, who didn't want me to use his name because he doesn't want to be held responsible for any associated jinxes. Tough call, Fred. It's your call. You're on the record picking a fight with the Battle of Alberta. His name is Fred. How about this one from Tyler who wrote in? Tyler says, I'm a Christian, and I'm appalled at what's transpiring at the so-called Grace Life Church. In Jesus' name, let's infect everybody. Asshattery abounds at that church. What kind of kangaroo court kangaroo court is going on here with Alberta Health Services and Alberta Justice? Ryan, what would have happened if a mosque or a marginalized group that wasn't white pulled this kind of shit? They would have shut them down and called the army. This is just another example of our fearless, gutless leader. That's right, Jason Kenny, looking at you, mister, trying to please everybody while putting us all at risk. Thanks for the increase in transmission, Jason. Angrily yours, Tyler. This one from Judy. She sat on it. She thought on it. After our exclusive with the mayor and the deputy mayor of Lesser Slave Lake that led to Pat Rain, the MLA, being booted out of conservative caucus, you're going, oh, we're going way back. Judy says, as soon as the mayor of Lesser Slave Lake revealed he's a UCP member, I got suspicious. She says, I've been thinking about it. Don't you see? This is all part of the theater. The conservatives realized they needed to gain back Albertans' trust. Now, one of the biggest issues they have is the parachute candidates. They're all being discovered. How many UCP members of Alberta's government are actually residents of the ridings they represent? This publicity event was just their first attempt to gain back our trust, gain our sympathy votes, and it looks like Albertans and the media are falling for it. That from... Judy, interesting take. I love this one from Ragey Christina B. She says, let me start by saying I was green before it was cool and long before it was a political catchphrase. I helped save the whales, the ozone. I raised awareness for the rainforest as well as Clayquot Sound. The carbon tax is a load of shit says Ragey Christina B. The environment minister's crappy canned responses were crap to the max on your show, Ryan. My house was built in 2013. It's poorly insulated. We use a space heater. And telling me, instead of telling me to upgrade my seven-year-old home, encourage builders to stop building crappy spaces. Public transit? No. There's no way I'd feel safe. And I'm white. Imagine being an Asian woman or a Muslim woman. Not a chance. Buy a more fuel-efficient vehicle? Is this guy for real we're middle class i've been driving an 06 toyota for reasons like it runs fine i can't afford a new payment what's the carbon footprint of manufacturing a new car versus buying used stop telling me i get more in rebates than i pay in carbon tax it's bs consumer goods go up in price nobody will absorb the price increase of fuel heating cooking they'll pass it on to people like me tax the coal exports heading to china 
tax the rich who live in homes typically far larger than necessarily. And lastly, nobody's talking about the fashion industry, the next largest polluter and emitter. Stop attacking Canadian oil and gas from Ragey Christina B. And this one, we had to dial this one back because Scott's got a B in his bonnet. But some lines even we can't trash talk, even right here. Okay, so Scott, I apologize for the emissions and the edits, but I had to, buddy. He says, Ryan, here's my best effort. Buckle up. Scott says, I got to be honest, every time Alberta's Premier opens up his mouth, my body tenses with rage. What an embarrassment. I'm particularly outraged this week, though, as an educator and a parent of a child who would be starting kindergarten this year, this trash heap of a curriculum is supposed to come into force. What really gets me is when the Premier starts spouting off about how awful he thinks education is because of made-up issues like Discovery Math and his quest to end constructivism. Can I remind you, sir, you were booted out of Bible school? He says, there's no such thing called discovery math no curriculum anywhere directs teachers how to teach it alberta remains solidly in the top echelon of jurisdictions for math science and reading scores tested internationally you could try citing your sources jason i don't know i don't know to justify this whole shamble mess but we all know that all you're relying on is wikipedia and core knowledge the official opposition infinitely more qualified and educated than you which must drive you nuts but they do respect experts when it comes to K-12 education, practicing teachers, and dedicated researchers. Why don't you give us all a break from the gaslighting and the lies and put this abomination of a curriculum where it belongs? In the shredder! That's from Scott, who went on to say, thanks for Real Talk. Keep it up. We promise we will. After a few days off, next Wednesday, live, 8.30 Mountain, 10.30 Eastern. We'll see you then. Have a great long weekend.